The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm a gigantic fan, so it's a, it's a real honor. And it's it's very nice to know that you could actually play pool. Well, we've only played two rikes. Yeah, but I could see. I could see how you move the ball around. You got to get a little warmed up. You yeah, know, we well, just started. Yeah, well, it, it is true that if you start playing pool against somebody you don't know and you discover that they do understand that control of the cue ball is everything. Yeah. And that's something you think, oh, well, maybe we could have a game. Well, as soon as you looked at the table and said, these are very unforgiving pockets, I was like, oh, you know. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, uh, it's an honor to have you in here. I'm very excited. But uh, second of all, uh, you're in the middle of a lot of things. You've, you've got your tour. You've got a lot of controversy going on. It's, uh, I really enjoyed that conversation that you had with CNN because that kind of conversation is, is rare to see on air and see someone as informed as you are to have uh, these opinions and express them so honestly and uh, bravely. Yeah, and, uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Well, I've I'd known Michael a bit for uh, a year or two, and he he actually my last kind of engagement with him with Michael McConish I'm talking about who write the interview uh, was when I was playing in Miami a few years ago, and the local Jewish community decided that I shouldn't be allowed to use local school children to sing Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 because all during the wall tours that I did, I always used local children, um, preferably from, you know, undernourished communities, um, to come and sing with me, between 8 and 12 of them every night. And they would come in, having, having listened to the song a bit, and I would rehearse them at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and then, boom, at half past eight, they're on stage singing. And they get very excited, and, and obviously. But it, it's a wonderful thing yeah. for them, but also for me and also for the band. Have these children come and p perform with us on stage. And the mayor of North Miami Beach or wherever it was came under some pressure from the local community. And they did, and they weren't allowed to play. So I got some other kids. But what was the objection? That I'm an anti-Semite. Obviously, I'm not an anti-Semite. Let's get that clear yeah. straight away, if you don't mind. Um, because I'm obviously not. You can you study my record going back as far as you want. Um, so that yeah, that's the, but that's always the objection because because I support BDS and because I have for the last sixteen years or so. BDS, you know what BDS is: boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Okay, it's a it's a movement that was started in two thousand and five uh, in Palestinian civil society, and it stands for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And uh, so it's a movement to try and uh, shine a light on the predicament of the Palestinian people, particularly in the occupied territories, um, but also, I guess, in Israel itself, um, using those, using boycott and divestment from companies that, like Caterpillar or Hewlett-Packard, people like that, uh, who deal in the illegal settlements in the occupied territory, and... Sanctions, well, there are, there's 
there's no, not many people out there who are powerful enough to impose sanctions on other people. And, um, and most of those with that much power are allies of the Israeli government and so wouldn't do so. But anyway, that's what it is by and large. And since then, we have made great strides in that movement and it's a much bigger movement than it was. And in, and in consequence, um, the, the sort of battle lines have been drawn, but it's got more intense and it's slightly less gentlemanly sport than it was 16 years ago, in my experience, anyway. So 16 years ago, you were allowed to have different opinions about conflicts. Well, no, but nobody knew about the conflict. Mm. It was largely unknown that there was a problem at all in the, in, in the Holy Land, uh, certainly by most of the public in this country and where I'm from, from in the UK as well. And in me, I mean, I I had accepted back in 2005 or six, one of those years, to do to do a gig in Tel Aviv. I was asked in the middle of a European tour, "Hey, Raj, they want you to go and do a gig in Tel Aviv." Is that? And I went, "Yeah, all right." I didn't it, I didn't think twice about it. So that's where I was then. So I'm not blaming people for not having known about the Zionist project since 1948 and everything that had happened. Uh, although I was vaguely aware of the Yom, Kipp- Yom Kippur War, the 67 War, and the 75 War, and so on and so forth, I knew a little bit about the history, but I wasn't really au fait. And that's how I learned, because as soon as I said I would do that gig, I started to receive emails from supporters of BDS, although it was only five or six months old at the time, mainly from North Africa to start with, but then... I got an email from Omaba Guti, who is um, who was one of the sort of founding forces behind uh, the beginnings of BDS, and he tried to persuade me to cancel the gig in high combat, which had sold out, of course, in a few minutes, you know. And uh, eventually, I was persuaded to cancel that gig, but as an act of compromise, as I thought. I feel as if I'm repeating a speech that I've all That's okay. made already, which I am. That's you know, all right. I've said this so often before. Anyway, so I moved the gig to an ecumenical agricultural community called Wahat Asalam in Arabic, and translated into Hebrew, it's um, Neve Shalom, so something about peace, uh, where... Muslims and Christians and Druze and atheists and all live together in a community and all their children all go to the same school and they all mix together and they live peacefully and grow chickpeas mainly. As an example to the rest of us, if you like. So we did a gig there in the open air and it was huge. Uh, 60,000 Israelis came. What I didn't realize at the time, of course, was of course they were all Israelis because Palestinians aren't allowed to travel, so there couldn't be any Palestinians there. They would need special permission, you know, to cross through checkpoints and things, which they wouldn't get. So we did this gig, and at the end of it, and it was lovely, they were extremely enthusiastic, they knew the work very well, and it was very, ah, pink fly, and all of that, and lovely food backstage, and it was a warm summer evening. At the end of it, I thought, 
I'm going to say something. It was euphoric at the end of the gig. And I said, so I made a little speech and I went, you are the generation of young Israelis who need to make peace with your neighbors, start talking to the Palestinian Authority and the blah, 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 and whatever. And, da, da, da. and they went from ah, Pink Floyd to ah, nothing. Nothing. It was like steel shutters had come down behind the eyeballs of every one of those 60,000 young Iranians. They were gone. And I was staggered by that. And I, th I was really shocked, really, really, really shocked. I couldn't believe it. And I saw it. I went back the next year and traveled extensively in the occupied territories. And until you go there and you see it, you cannot believe what a shock it is. You know, you, things that you wouldn't believe possible anywhere on the world, like different roads for people with different religion. Can you imagine? Really? Yeah, really. Can you imagine you're going from Austin to, you know, to Dallas, and you can only go on the road if you're Christian? If you're not a Christian, you can't go on the road. So if you're, if you're an atheist or some other thing, you're not allowed to drive on the road. You have to go on back roads, and they're, mainly, and they're all filled up with boulders, and there are checkpoints everywhere. So the local indigenous people are not allowed to use the roads. And you see that, and the, when you see it, you think, I don't believe this, but you get to believe it as you drive around. And all the checkpoints, and they, they have to go this way. Only people with yellow license plates can go through here, which means that they're Jewish Israelis. And it's mind-numbingly um, fills you with despair when you see it. You think, how can this possibly be happening? You know, this is, it's 2007 or, or whenever it was. How can this be happening in the world? And nobody where I live knows about it. Or if they do, they don't care. How can they not care? And I say, you might bring it up here and say, how would you feel if you weren't a Christian and that meant you couldn't use the road? I mean, it's so weird that it's hard to get your mind around believing that that is the case, but it is. And that is what is called apartheid. And in those days, you couldn't use the word apartheid in relation to Israel. It was completely verboten in 2006 you could not use the word. You would have been strung up in the press and everywhere else and accused of being a Holocaust denier and a this and that and Hitler and whatever. Now, it's very difficult for anyone to have a conversation about Israel and Palestine without using the word apartheid because it is in the lexicon. And the problem is far more in the light and we are looking at it more and there's more information for all of us about it than there was then. That is the work that BDS has done. And so it has made progress, and I'm glad it has, because what I desperately hope to live to see is a holy land. I don't care what it's called. From the River Jordan to the sea, where the people all have equal religious and political and social rights, all of them equal. And so that's what I work for in the movement. And maybe we should talk about something else, because I'm, if you wind me up, I might go <laughs> on for, 
crash. Well, I'd be happy to wind you up. I, I mean, the, the definition of apartheid coffee. is yes, it is. Yeah. It, it's segregation. I mean, that is segregation, clearly. Yeah. yeah. What is this? It's the oppression of one ethnic yes. group by another ethnic group. Yes. For those reasons, for the fact that they're different ethnic groups. So the South African model clearly applies, except that the South Africans who survived the South African model all say that the Israeli model is far worse than the white South African model was. The white South Africans at least tried to build... Well, they try, they've poured money in for a start, trying to keep the black population quiet, which they failed to do. Um, but both Desmond Tutu, before he sadly died, and uh, Mandela, obviously, as well, both came out completely and said, this is a lot worse than our conditions were in South Africa before apartheid. So just discussing this and having compassion for the plight of the Palestinian people, that, that made them categorize you as anti-Semitic? Yeah. Did, did anyone have, and I'm sure someone must have talked to you about this segregation, did anyone have any kind of argument that they wanted to bring to you as for any justification of that. You mean from the Israelis? Yes. No. That's why they call me anti-Semitic. That's why they label anyone who criticizes the apartheid policies of the state of Israel without criticizing the Jewish religion or any Jewish person. I mean, the fact that a lot of the people who are in the government are of the Jewish faith means that they can somehow feel they can conflate criticism of the apartheid policies with the general criticism of an anti-Semitic criticism of the Jewish people or people who, well, they, nice try, fellas, but it won't wash. That's not what it is. And most of us who get labeled as anti-Semites are not. And like Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, the guy who was removed from the Labour Party in England on the grounds that he was accused of being... He's not anti-Semitic. He's left-wing and he's pro-Palestinian, pro the idea that they should have human rights, that the Palestinian people, who after all were the huge majority of the indigenous people um, in the Holy Land back in the start of the 20th century, before the start of the Zionist enterprise which didn't really get going till 1920, although the idea um, the idea was happening in the late 19th century, in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, can't remember the guy's name now, but he was a, Ru a Russian who thought up the idea of a return to the promised land, as it's called. Out of all the people that perform music and travel and are as prominent as you are, you're, you're probably one of the most outspoken and informed when it comes to issues on foreign policy and human rights. And how, how, When did this become a big part of your life and when did discussing this publicly become a big part of your life? Well, it became a big part of my life the day my father died, I think. I mean, I wouldn't know because I was only five months old. My father, as you might or may not know, died at Anzio on the 18th of February, 1944, and I was born September 43, so I was only a few months old. But when, it, when I started to understand some of this was when he didn't come home and start picking me up from school when I was a little kid. 
And then, all through my childhood, I lived. I was brought up by my mother, my brother, and my big brother John and I were brought up single-handed by my mum, who was a school teacher, but she was also very left-wing. She's an interesting woman because um, she came from a very kind of middle-class family in London. Funnily enough, they lived in Golders Green, which was sort of well-known for being a Jewish community in North London. Um, her father ran a, ran a business that was sort of middleman in fancy goods, toys and things like that. So there was a big warehouse in London. And th- but my mother, and she went off to a boarding school, girls' school. So she was very brought up in a very fairly straight-laced English, Christian, middle-class way. She then trained as a teacher, and her first teacher training was in a town called Bradford, which is in the north of London. And not north of London, north of England, far north of England, in Yorkshire. And it was a huge eye-opener to her. There she was. First winter comes along. It's really cold. There's a foot of snow on the floor. And she suddenly notices that half the kids in her class are walking to school with no shoes. And something went, bing. This would have been in 1935, 36, something like that. And she suddenly went, what? And she started to look into social conditions there in the industrial north. And, and even then, in the, in the mid to late 30s, she understood that there were inequalities in the context of the society that she lived in that, that she felt a personal need to do something about. And she became extremely left-wing. Um, anyway, cut to later on. So our front room was always a Labour Party committee room and she was always off in the evenings canvassing at elections or, and dragging me and my brother to British China Friendship Association me- meetings in the evening. And, but she was always very careful and clear with us that she would... I remember one day she said to me and my brother when we come back from a meeting Interestingly enough, at the Friends Meeting House, which is the place the Quakers meet, you know, in it, wherever it is in the world, it's always called the Friends Meeting House. And we've been watching films of K-pop-clad Chinese, you know, soldiers fighting against Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist puppet government and blah, 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 blah. And she said, you know where we've been tonight, don't you, Roger? And I said, no. And she said, we've been at the Friends Meeting House. That is where the Quakers meet. She said, well, as you know, I'm an atheist. So I can't subscribe to their religious beliefs, but I will say this. They are very, very good people. That stuck with... I can still recount that story now because it's so important. You don't have to subscribe to people's beliefs. You can... I can be a radical atheist and you can be a Hindu. The important thing is that we're good people that we have hearts and that we care about our brothers and sisters. And and my mum did. I'm going to tell you one more mum story and then then I'll stop about mum because this is the most important bit. I was 13 years old. I had just gone through a phase where I suddenly realised I was going to die. I don't know if all adolescents have this existential crisis in their young, in early puberty. But I did. 
And I thought, F me. Are we going to die? <laughs> this is scary as shit, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I was, it might have been that or it might have been something else. But anyway, something was worrying me and it was probably more some kind of political thing that I'd latched onto, maybe through her. And she, and she looked at me and she said, all right, I'm going to give you some advice now. Go on then, Mum. All through your life, you're going to be faced with difficult questions and you're going to have to figure things out. This is my advice. When anything crops up, so it could be Israel, Palestine, it could be anything, it doesn't matter what it is. You must read, 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 read. That's what Smokonish was telling me. Yeah. He, had, he hadn't, he'd only read one side. That's the difference between Michael Smokonish and me. I've tried to look at all sides of these things, so I know a bit more what I'm talking Anyway, she said, read, read, read. And, very important, learn everything you can about the subject that's troubling you. And, importantly, yeah, look at it from both sides. If you, there's another opinion, make sure you study that as well, and blah, blah, blah. It'll take some time, it'll be hard work, but when you've done that, the work is over. You have done all the heavy lifting. The rest of it is easy. And I went, uh... What is the rest of it, Mum? <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, the rest of it? Well, that's simple. You do the right thing. Sounds like you had an amazing mom. Amazing, amazing. Imagine giving... Every, every young adolescent should be given that advice by a parent or someone they respect, you know, because it's... I, I've. That's been jangling around in my head ever since. Not every day, but... Very often I remember it, and I tell it to anybody who cares to listen as well, because it was so important. It's incredibly important and not said nearly enough. It's rare. That's what's amazing. Like it sound, it resonates. It sounds so powerful and true, and yet rare. Yeah, but what happens then? If we're sitting down the pub and I tell you that story and we've got all night, one of us will have another drink and then we might start talking about the philosophical implications of how you decide what's the right thing to do. Right. Because some bloke listening to this wherever, it doesn't matter where they are, who's, who's Zionist and who believes in the Zionist emperor, uh, you know, enterprise in Israel and in the occupied territory, in fact, in the whole of the past palace a uh, promised land let's call it the promised land it's it's dangerous to call it the promised land because then you start and get getting biblical right promised who was it promised to well right. ah, it was promised to the israelis you know whoa, whoa, whoa sorry i didn't mean the promised land i meant the middle east what do you mean the middle east that was made up by sykes and pico after the first world war you know so but you do get into the thing of Wow. What? Now, this really is a fascinating conversation. The right thing to do. Should we start talking about now and what's going on in the world now and what the right thing to do might be? I mean, you said a, a few minutes ago that I'm, I've been a bit controversial, particularly recently. And part of the controversy is about... Um, the Ukraine and what's the right what's the right thing to all I've done about the Ukraine is to try to lend what little weight I have to put that tiny bit of power I have in my shoulder to the wheel of encouraging anybody I can get to listen to stop 
the war, including Putin. I've written to Putin. I wrote to Putin four or five days ago because people were saying, why don't you tell Putin? He, well, just hold on a minute. If you want to join this conversation, you have to do a bit of research. You know, Well, you don't have to, obviously. You can believe... But you should. You should. You, it would be wise. If you took my mother's advice, you would, before you expressed an opinion about what's the right thing to do. And also, when you're thinking about it, if you want my advice, you will constantly put yourselves in the position of that young Ukrainian man or woman on the front line and that young Russian man or woman, the woman in the front line and their parents and their uncles and aunts and their brothers and sisters and the misery and pain and the lack of anything good at the end. And the more it, and the more it escalates, the more we send arms, the more Putin, the, the less, the only thing that they can do is start to talk to one another, just like JFK and Nikita Khrushchev did in 1962 uh, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis which was kept secret for years and years afterwards because JFK didn't want to look like a wimp. He didn't want to look as if he'd... But he did. He and Nikita Khrushchev spoke on the telephone often. And at the end of it, they did a quid pro quo deal where JFK said, I'll take all our medium-range missiles out of Turkey and wherever else it was. Turkey was the main one if you take your missiles out of Cuba. So they put their hands across the ocean and shook hands, and that was the end of it. And they did it. And they kept their word. They kept their word to that bargain. And that led on to the later conversations between Reagan and Gorbachev and the non-proliferation treaties and all the other things that made our planet a little bit safer from the possibility of nuclear catastrophe. Not safe, but a little bit until now. And now... By the second, it gets more and more and more and more dangerous as this thing is allowed to escalate. So I'm making my position entirely. All I'm interested in is a ceasefire and for talks to begin. That's all, nothing else. What did you say to Putin when you wrote to him? I said that friends of mine think that... I said, uh, I, I need to pull the letter up if you want to really hear it. But Sure. Okay. I'll tell you one thing I said before I pull it up because okay. it'll take a minute, um, was that I said some friends of mine, because I have a guitar-playing friend in England who wrote to me, why are you trying to suggest peace and a ceasefire? This man has to be... He's a monster. He's going to invade Poland and then he'll invade the rest of Europe and then, and unless we stand up to him now, we're blah, 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 and, and all of that. So one of the things I said to Putin, a friend of mine thinks that you're going to invite Poland and the other Baltic states and that you're then going to advance on Europe and blah, blah, blah. If that's true, please tell us now so we can all just say, all right, and blow ourselves to smithereens because that's what's going to happen if you do that for sure, for absolutely sure. You cannot, if you do that, you will start World War Three. We know that the Ukraine situation is complicated and it's been 20 years in the making and and it's well I, I won't go into the american end of it 
I mean, I, I will. If you've got a minute, I yeah, will I've find... Yeah, I've got plenty of time. All right. Yeah, uh, I had Tulsi Gabbard on the other day. Yeah, and, how and is she? She's great. Good. And we discussed this very thing, and we uh, discussed the United States uh, when they orchestrated a coup in Ukraine and how NATO has been moving their weapons closer and closer to the Russian line. Yeah. And that this is instigating. And and they've been saying all along, you're breaking the yes. the agreement that was made between Baker, who was Secretary of State in 1990, and yeah. Gorbachev, where Gorbachev said, okay, I, I will agree to the reunification of Germany so long as NATO doesn't move one inch closer to the Russian border than the eastern borders of Germany. And they went, fine, agreed. Yeah. And they've reneged on it completely since I then. I think what was very important in the conversation that you had with CNN is not that Russia is good and that, you know, uh, we should support Russia. You, there was none of that. What, what you were essentially saying was that we have to be honest about what the United States has done. And that narrative is never discussed. When he was talking about the dangers of China, and you brought up the fact that China hasn't invaded anyone in over 100 years. Like, how can you say that when you know about all the interventionalist foreign policy decisions that the United States has made overseas? Yeah. And then you look at what China's done. Well, they have actually. They invaded Tibet in 1959. Oh, that's, but, that's true. Which is a huge thing, and it's something that I'm going to bring up, and because it's something I've only learned about recently. Funnily enough, I learned about it from my friend Eric Repair, who's a very well-known chef in New York, and he's a Buddhist. And so he travels to Bhutan at least once a year. And he was recently in, in India having meetings with people who are... And uh, we were talking about it, about the predicament of the Tibetan people. What I never understood was that Tibet is one-third of the land area of China. Really? Exactly. You didn't know either. Big? Apparently, yeah. And I haven't, whoops, I haven't yet kind of, look, this was a few days ago. I haven't checked it all out and looked on the map. But, yes. I would have never imagined. No, I know. but And you think, well, why the hell did they, who, who wants, you know, hundreds of square miles of mountains and things? Well, the Chinese, no, because it's not just mountains, it's water, which is hugely important. The Himalayas... All the glacial streams, they feed water, not not just to India, okay, and, and Pakistan, but also to um, to the northeast of the whole of China as well. Plus, apparently, and not surprisingly, it's packed with everything that you make chips out of. Of course. It's packed and packed with, it's an absolute, it's... I nearly said it's a gold mine. Well, it's not a gold mine. It's a mineral mine. It's a mineral mine. It's everything that everybody who cares about making money in the world desperately needs and wants. <laughs> so it's a fascinating subject. Mm, well, particularly China, right? Because China's so involved in the Congo in extracting these minerals. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, they, they, yeah, but to their credit, they didn't invade and kill everybody like right. the Europeans did back right. in the, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century. They actually went, you know, would you like to borrow some money? Which yeah. is more of an <laughs> American ploy. Yeah, it's more of a kind of modern way yeah. of doing it. And if, if people, and who knows what they do if the people say, nope, no thank you, we're good. But they said thank you. They said thank you, yeah. Sure. And, you know, 
Yeah, should they be? Yeah, of course they should. They should be allowed to do business with whoever they want. I I believe in the idea of what's called free trade up to that point, but it has there has to be a fair crack of the whip of everybody. And by and large, when multi you know multinational corporations want to invest in underdeveloped countries, they want to do it on their terms, and they don't want the people who live there to get anything out of it. I mean, I've been involved in a court battle for at least 10 years now with Chevron because of the pollution that they caused in the, in the Amazon, in, north, in north, northeast Ecuador, um, with a friend of mine called Steve Donziger, who was sent to prison yes. for acting on behalf of yeah. these people. I, well, know, I know I'm digressing. Well, that the Donziger case is atrocious. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrifying case because there's no reason why they had that man in prison. And there's there's no reason why they keep him under house arrest. Well, there is a reason. Yeah, but, right. But no righteous. No legal reason. No legal reason. No. Yeah. Righteous. That's interesting because that comes to back to my mother. Yeah. And doing the right thing. Yeah. Obviously, the right thing to do, if you were the law in the United States, would be to look at look at the facts of the matter and come to the conclusion that Chevron should give the $9.5 billion to the people whose lives they've destroyed making money, or Texaco was the company who actually did it. But things being what they are, that's not the way the law works. The law operates to support whoever can afford it, actually, which in this case is Chevron. They still haven't paid a penny, and they're still fighting, and they will go on fighting. And speaking as somebody who's supporting the other side, who doesn't have bottomless pockets, it's hard. It's hard to find that. that, that the amount of money that they spend on it is because they're worried of a domino effect that if they lose this case, then they're going to lose the case in Nigeria right. and they're going right. to lose the case in Australia and, lose, and they suddenly they can see the whole pack of cards beginning to collapse. Well, it should collapse. Pay up. You've, been, you've made enough profits out of the indigenous people all over the world. Which is a scary precedent that they were able to arrest Dossinger like that, and that they were able to keep him in jail, and that what, the way they did it. Yeah, and it was p- completely corrupt. They, yeah. t- they did, a, back in 2014, they produced a RICO trial, which is, you know, it's organized crime. It's um, regulations or something against organized crime. So, so they pretended he was a gangster on a fraudulent mission. And they brought this case in the Southern southern District of New York. Incredible that they could do it. Um, and well, incredible the, and br- that the media is ignoring it, too, that this isn't something well, what that else? people are absolutely outraged about. Well, what isn't the media ignoring? The, yeah. On the media, with the possible exception of you, and some others who have great podcasts as well, but are independent of the mainstream yeah. media, the media only has one message which is support the status quo right we all of us work for whoever it may be and we don't need to get all conspiracy theory about you know secret societies we know it's very it's the very very wealthy half of one percent who who tell everybody what to they're called the ruling class because they are the ruling class and we all do what we're told by the media, who by and large repeat the same mantra over and over again. So it's a bit tricky. Yeah, the, well, the media has failed 
in their objective dissemination of information. It, that doesn't exist anymore. They're bought and paid by the advertisers, and the advertisers are enormously powerful. And so things like that that are inconvenient realities, like the Dozinger trial, that just swept under the rug. Yeah. Which it should be outrageous. It should be something that's on... Well, it is outrageous, yes. of course. But I did a gig a few weeks ago in D.C. and played to, I don't know, 16,000 people or something. And the next day I dragged myself out of bed and bushed over to the steps of the DOG, knowing full well what I would find, which is my friend Randy Craglico and a, and a van with a sign on it, and about 40 of the same activists I've seen at every gathering in support of Stephen Donziger and his freedom for the last 10 years, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like, and I was, I actually made a little speech the other day and was saying, you know, I would be happy if there were 4 million of us here. And there should be, standing under that memorial, the Washington Memorial in front of the Capitol and saying, what happened to democracy? Where is the rule of law that we all pretend we care about? Where are the freedoms and liberties and this and that? And the other, they've they've sort of disappeared under a roller coaster of con consumerism, you know, as we know. So while we're having our little meetings, people are wandering by, like they don't even know we're there, right. and they have no idea what we're there for or what we're talking about. So yeah, it's it's extremely frustrating. But luckily, there are those forty or fifty people, and they have hearts of gold. All right. And they will not shut up, however few of them there are. And luckily, you're here as well, and that I can come on here and talk about these things um, without being dismissed as a crank or a conspiracy theorist. I don't know if you saw, but I did an interview with Rolling Stone because I remember Rolling Stone when it was a magazine that was sort of about rock and roll, but it also had a kind of... S Semi, semi-progressive liberal stance to it. And think, well, not anymore. It's changed hands. And, uh, well, it doesn't matter. I had Jan on yesterday. Oh. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. I miss Jan. Yeah. He, he, was, he was the heart and soul of that He was place. the heart and soul of Rolling Stone. And he still is a progressive hippie at heart. Yeah, of course he is. I mean, talking to him yesterday, it's just he, he bleeds it. And his daughter is called India. As is mine. Mine's a bit older because I remember him coming to me one day. I said, is your daughter called India? I said, yeah. He said, oh. Yeah, the first girl I think of his is called India too. Anyway. Your Putin letter. Oh. <laughs> I'm not avoiding you. I just, no, I know I, you're I, not. You just pulled it up. I just wanted to keep it on track. I, I just want to see where I can find it. I may have to say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into Word. And, and search for it. Do you know if he uh, received this? Well, it was open. Oh. I'm sure somebody okay. will have told him about it. Yeah. Sure. I'm absolutely certain. But obviously, he hasn't responded to it. I mean, he is, uh, you know, he's the president of Russia. <laughs> There's no reason why, why he would. So it's not in there. Right. Let me do a search. Uh, letter. I'll just say letter and see what comes up. Open letter to Vladimir Putin. Okay. Here we go. Here it is. Uh, Jamie actually pulled it up on the screen. Jamie actually oh, pulled oh, it up oh, here. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, 
Dear President Putin, since the Russian Federation invaded Ukraine on February the 24th this year, I've tried to use my small influence to encourage a ceasefire and a diplomatic settlement that addresses the security needs of both Ukraine and the Russian Federation. In that endeavor, I've written two open letters to Mrs. Elena Zelenska, the wife of the Ukrainian president. These, I can give you those letters as well. These letters are readily available on the internet. I'm increasingly asked to write to you too. So here goes. First, would you like to see an end to this war? Question mark. If you were to reply and say, yes, please, that would immediately make things a lot easier. He has, by the way, yesterday. He said, yes, please. Really? Yes, he made a long speech with the accession speech of... Uh, Donetsk and Lugansk and Kyrgyzstan and and the other bit of Ukraine that he that the, they had the referendum and the people said, "Can we be part of Russia, please?" Anyway, that's what that's about. So, um, uh, if you were to come out and say, "Oh yeah," if you were to come out and say, "Also, the Russian Federation has no further territorial interest beyond the security of the Russian-speaking populations of the Crimea." Donetsk and Luhansk. That would help too. I say this because I know some people who think you want to overrun the whole of Europe, starting with Poland and the rest of the Baltic states. If you do, fuck you. And we might as well all stop playing the desperately dangerous game of nuclear chicken that the hawks on both sides of the Atlantic seem so comfortable with and have at it. Yep, just blow each other and the world to smithereens. The problem is I have kids and grandkids and so do most of my brothers and sisters all over the world and none of us would relish that outcome. So please, Mr. Putin, indulge me and make us that assurance that he hasn't done yet. But I have no doubt that it's part and parcel of what he is now saying publicly. All right, back to the table. If I've read your previous speeches correctly, would you like to negotiate a state of neutrality for a sovereign neighboring Ukraine? Is that correct? Assuming such a peace could be negotiated, it would have to include an absolute binding agreement not to invade anyone ever again. Full stop. I know, I know the USA and NATO invade other sovereign nations at the drop of a hat or for a few barrels of oil, but that doesn't mean you should. Your invasion of Ukraine took me completely by surprise. It was a heinous war of aggression, provoked or not. When Mrs. Zelenska replied to me via Twitter, I was very surprised and mightily moved. If you were to reply to me, I would mightily respect you for it and take it as an honourable move in the right direction towards a sustainable peace. Yours sincerely. So what did Putin say in terms of wanting a resolution? Well, you're going to have to look up his accession speech because I'm not going to start trying okay. to quote Putin in translation right. without some words in front of me because I could get it wrong. Got it. And blah, 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 blah. He, he, said, he said one thing that could be seen as combative, which I can remember, he said. He said, I want to come to the table. I want to cease fire. I want to, to negotiate. Negotiate peace, not dictate peace. Negotiate peace uh, with the Ukraine. With, with Zelenska, he said, but the will of the people in the Donetsk, Lubansk, um, Kirshen, and whatever the one is whose name I can't remember, is inviolate. That is not up for discussion. Zelenska, in response, said, 
I will not negotiate with Russia until Putin has been removed. Oh, Jesus. And you go, Miss President Zelenska, are you? I mean, that's that really is. That's an insane, that's it, an insane it, thing to say. It, yeah, it's poking in the eye with a sharp stick, and it's not helpful at all. No. It's, anyway. It's also not likely to happen. I think it's extremely unlikely. There's nothing unites people more than an than a existential attack upon what they consider to be their sovereignty. And let us not forget, anybody who would like to join this conversation with me or John Mearsheimer or any of the other people who are pro-peace and pro-diplomacy and pro-negotiations and pro-learning to get on with all our brothers and sisters in Russia who are very good people... As my mother would say, my mother used to say that about the Americans because she came here for two years on an exchange when she was a student and she spent the summer near Akron in Ohio at a Girl Scout camp and then she spent another few months in Texas. So that was her thing. And I'll never forget, she used to say to me, you know, Roger, the Americans... They're really very interesting people. He said they're very good people. They're very good-hearted people. They look after you. They're very, very hospitable and very, very good in that way. She said, but they are also very naive. And I thought, wow. I mean, this is from years and years years ago. I wrote a poem. I'm going to show show this. I pulled this up earlier. So if you don't mind. Please. There's a poem that pertains to this that I wrote. Uh, how do I find this? Uh, why can I? Oh, here it is. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I found it immediately. It's, it, all right. So I was, um, I wrote this just after G.W. Bush was elected for the second time. Okay, and it's just called America. It used to be called Why Cannot the Good Prevail? I need to wet my whistle. Or I shall run out of spittle before I get to <laughs> the good bits. All right, yeah, I can keep those up. Okay, here we go. It's, it's short. <sighs> America. Why cannot the good prevail? Here... In America, there is at heart a people just and true, open sometimes to the point of ridicule, good neighbors to rebuild the barn, the doctor's note of Western legend carried forth beyond the grave. I knew your pa enough. In caucuses across the land, deliberate they'll always stand, Defenders of the Rosenbergs, symbolic of that yearning to be better than before. They never will give up their brother to the grocer's cold machine. Belt welts livid from the strong arm of the law. On campuses, in boardrooms, over giving thanks and pumpkin pie, on hustings in committee rooms, whenever tyrants loomed, we always held in our esteem the ones who hold on to the dream, unflinching while the bullies pose and fiddle on the hill. Has commerce so reduced the free that, 
blinded like a tot, contaminated by the dog shit in the grass. We blunder, slaves to humbug and this Texan dynasty. No. Beyond the grip of trade, the young strain beautiful and proud. The hoarfrost breath of new blood needs but nudges from the old forgotten guard to scale the moral high grounds in the clouds. Wow. It makes me almost emotional to read that because I wrote that 18 years ago now. But the idea of a younger generation coming up and saying, enough with this bullshit. This is bullshit. This is who we are. We are the good neighbour to rebuild the barn. That's who we want to be, you know. I think the young people do have good hearts and good intentions. It's just the narrative is so cloudy and it's so difficult to sort out what's actually going on versus what you're being told. Yeah. That people just sort of lose interest in it, yeah. except for the very few that are very driven yeah. and very disciplined and really do spend the time to look at things. And those people ultimately usually wind up becoming activists or very involved at least. Yeah. And, men, and many of them cling to their activism till their dying day, like yeah. me, for instance. Yeah. But I know so many. And, and they're men that, and women that just, you just want to hug, you just want to go, oh my God, you're such a, you're so um, dogged, but also brave. And, and you've got such a big heart that you care about people enough to make a fuss you know it makes a difference it, sometimes it doesn't feel like it does but that that signal does get out there yeah. and the people that have that signal uh, as, uh, as small as their audience might be occasionally that signal will reach someone else and they'll 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 spread it yeah it's like i know i mean this is all right we luckily we've got time We've got all the time in the world. Which is huge because um, that jogs a bit of my brain that wants to say, go on then, if you could paint a picture of the future, what might it include? What would be the first step? You're the king of everything. What, what's the first thing that you do tomorrow? You've got to take money out of politics, number one. <sighs> Citizens United, <sighs> gone. Number one, take money out of politics because the decisions that are being made are not being made in the best interest of the people. They're being made in the best interest in the people who have money. Quite right. Well, I'm with you on that. That's the number one thing. That's the number one reason why we get involved in wars that we have no business in. I mean, Eisenhower warned us about that when he was leaving office with that speech about the military-industrial complex. I don't know if you noticed because I sent you a stick of my show, but... Before we do the song Sheep, the last thing, be it says, Orwell was right to warn us in Brave New World in 1984, and Aldous Huxley was right to warn us of the coming dystopia in, in yeah, no, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World. And Dwight D. Eisenhower was right to warm up, warm, warn us in his military-industrial speech. Yeah. I was right to warn us in my song <laughs> Sheep. <laughs> and then we play it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm really, really excited to see your show tomorrow night. But one of the things that's so cool about your show is that you do, uh, you have all of these messages that are tied into the music, and you have this incredible visual 
uh, accoutrement to this this gigantic thing that goes along with your show. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. It, it, there's no question that that visually and sonically is impressive, and also I I use my almost that's not my whole body of work, but a small bit of things that go back to the beginning of when I started writing songs and things. So we play about half of Dark Side of the Moon, and but but. but of course, all the stuff that from Dark Side of the Moon, it was all about the same stuff that I'm banging on about now. Yeah. So it, it's it's all kind of, um, it's all very relevant. But I'm very interested in what you said. I'd like to pursue that because mm. you're so right about that. All right, what's the second thing? Well, money in politics is number one, right? Um, so the only reason why people would get involved in politics without money is to try to make the world a better place. And you would, I think you would, you would recruit more people yeah. that have good intentions and you would make it less attractive to people that are just looking to make money. Yeah. I mean, you look at what's going on, like Nancy Pelosi just shot down this thing where it bans Congress from trading in stocks. It's a, She shot down something to ban insider trading. Well, there's only one reason to do that, because you want to keep making money, insider trading. Yeah. You're talking about a woman who's on the last days of her life. Yeah. Who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars? Like, why do you give a shit, lady? Like, yeah. you talk about lost in the game. Well, maybe because she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, you 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 got your money. Yeah, you've you've got it all. Like, how how are you even going to spend all that? Yeah, you've she's eighty something years old, right? Yeah. Well, if you're lucky, would you got twenty years left? But you how any of them? Million they're, they're, it's not about spend. It's about power. Right. Exactly. It, Zuckerberg, I gather you spoke to Zuckerberg a few weeks ago. Zuckerberg, Bezos, you know, Gates, I don't care who they are, they're hugely rich American yeah. oligarchs. I'm sure it's true of Russian oligarchs mm -hmm. and Chinese oligarchs. And they amass the huge amounts of money because it gives them power. Then they buy newspapers and television stations and whatever. So they become part of the... Um, uh, part of the system of propaganda to yeah. keep us all in line. Um, and... And uh, I actually wrote uh, I wrote um, a sketch about I know you in comedy I wrote a sketch about Zuckerberg. Unfortunately, it's not in the show. Um, but I'll tell you what it was because it's unlikely that it'll get into the show now. And I, I was writing it about being down here. I the show originally when I wrote it was about them up there in the cloud and i actually had a city on a cloud floating about it's gone now it's now a penthouse so it's attached to the, in the show um and i write about them up there the oligarchs up there in the they're up there in the penthouse now and one of them is zuckerberg so i write a um i wrote a, a little sketch and it's about go away <laughs> like ah and then the door opens and a flunky comes in. And it's Zuckerberg and he's sitting there at his desk in front of his computer working, right? And he goes, get out! <laughs> I don't know if he speaks. I'm sure he doesn't speak like that because I've heard him speak and he's a bit soft-spoken. Yeah, he's very soft-spoken. And, and the flunky says, but sir, Mr. Zuckerberg, sir, it's really important. You know, I have to speak to you. You know, and then he and he tries again, and Zuckerberg's just screaming out. I think Zuckerberg at one point says, "I've told you never to interrupt me when I'm grading coeds." When you're what? Grading coeds. Oh, <laughs> could you grin at least? I like that. So whatever. And he says anyway. 
I'm going to stop acting because I can't use up my voice. <laughs> really, I shouldn't be. And uh, and the flunky says to him, "We've run out of we've run out of space to store the money." <laughs> and Zuckerberg screams at him, "Buy another fucking island! <laughs> Get out!" And then he throws his laptop away, and it goes through the window and comes down and lands in the Netherlands. So that was my little sketch, and I'm sorry I didn't manage to find a space for it in the show because I kind of like it. Do you think it's possible for someone to become that insanely wealthy and not be greedy? No, of course not. And you can't, someone... you can't do it without killing people, actually, is my belief. How so? Like with Zuckerberg? Well, I don't know because I don't I don't know the history well enough. Well, he created this social network and it became wildly popular. Yeah, and, and, he, then... and he's now in cahoots with the FBI and the CIA and has some cozy meetings with them, deciding who to allow to communicate with their brothers and sisters and who to censor. Well, we discussed that on the podcast. Did you? And yes. What, what did he have to say about Well, that? because I brought up the Hunter Biden story because I brought up censorship okay. in social media. And yeah. he said that the FBI had contacted Facebook and told them to be wary of a lot of Russian, Russian disinformation that was going to happen oh, brilliant. right before. I mean, this is... Russiagate! Hooray! Yeah. It's even invaded our afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> they can fuck off. <laughs> well, I, if I ever hear about Russiagate again... In fact, I did hear about it again. Where did I... I read something about it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Well, I, the fascinating part of that is that it's not true. Right, that's the fascinating part. The fascinating part is that there wasn't Russian disinformation in regards to that laptop. Right, that's not what was going on. It was an actual right. real laptop from a man who is the at the time the vice president's son, who had a serious drug problem and was kind of off the rails. And he left this laptop at a repair station, and it turned out inside <laughs> that laptop was a bunch of crazy shit, and it's real. Right. And they were saying that this was Russian disinformation, which would be the most wildly slanderous thing, wildly slanderous thing that uh, Russia has ever done. Like, it, it, like create a laptop and fill it with the son of the vice president, like pornography and bribery and all, all this crazy shit that's supposedly in that laptop. So the FBI contacts um, Facebook and tells them that there's going to be some Russian disinformation uh, leading towards the election and they uh, I don't believe he specifically said that that laptop was a part of it But they certainly were insinuating that yeah. and then they decided to limit the engagement that people had with that That's very vague. I don't know what he was saying when he said that but my perspective was now imagine if you are him and you're running something like Facebook you are first of all you're insanely busy and if you have trust and faith in the FBI and the intelligence agencies, you definitely don't want to be distributing disinformation from a foreign co company or a foreign country that's trying to undermine our election. So what do you do? Well, he didn't censor it the way Twitter did, which I think is pretty egregious. But what he did do is limit its engagement. I don't know what that means. The problem with that term, like limiting the engagement, like how are you doing that? What does that mean? Can you tell me what you do? And they don't. They well, don't tell you what's involved in whatever at least limited engagement protocol they have, whether it's censorship or it's, I don't know what you want to call it, because you could put it on, you could put that story on your page. It would just limit the amount of people who see it. But I don't understand how you're doing that. Like, and I don't think they want to reveal that either. 
Well, uh, the fact is, in my view, what's really dangerous is that this prick has any hand at all in deciding what any of us read about anything. Right. They, they should, he, shouldn't ha- he should not have his finger on the delete button on anything that goes through Facebook, in my view. Well, I'm, I'm a I pretty... mean, you could say there might be rules that say you can't have people saying you should go out and murder children. Right, right. But, but, but anything, and certainly anything to do with foreign... For instance, anything to do with the Ukraine war, you can't have Meta deciding what we should believe about that. It's bad enough that the whole of the print section of mainstream made it, and all television has decided what we right. should believe about the Ukraine. So they're, they're all completely happy to tell us that Russian soldiers have been raping babies to death. And, you know, and then three days later, you find out that it's unattributable. And where did that story come from? Mm. And it came from some nebulous site somewhere in the Ukraine. And so, but nevertheless, it's already been printed and it goes somewhere into the consciousness. You build up this thing. of this is, We can really hate these people enough so that people are now saying we should just kill them all now we should start the nuclear right. war now right some prick on twitter yesterday said it Themen or something his name I, I only know that because i've seen the tweets what did you he think, say what did he say that we should actually go to war yeah yeah nuclear yeah, war? yeah go to nuclear war and wipe them all out because he said we've been threatened the only thing to do is to wipe them out now what is this person's position in life what I'd, do they do? I'd, I'd have to look it up on twitter i've but no idea was it a journalist was it a no i, I don't know do you know what it is jerry have a look that's a that's a, such an insane perspective yeah i haven't got i, my I, phone I, I wonder how many people say things like that just to get attention and likes and just to get views because i think that's a big part of what twitter is yeah. it's like look at me it's, i'm gonna say something outrageous well yeah you could be right about that and you probably i'm sure you are right i'm sure there's a lot of look at me involved in a lot of these posts that go out well, go ahead and also a lot of what will think? What will people think of me? Which is the whole. If you think about it, all of this, if it all developed from the beginnings of Facebook and for, for whatever that site was that yeah. Zuckerberg started with, grading co-eds, that's sort of the beginning of it. And the FOMO and the this and that and sending pictures of yourself to your friends and caring what your schoolmates think about and, and all of that. And it blowing up into something that is far, far, far more important then your mother telling you, read as much as you can, get educated, make sure you know what you're talking about, and do the right thing. Which is because none of them are telling us to do that. They're well, telling that would be us wonderful. To buy. If your mother ran Facebook, that yeah. would be great. I yeah. think the world would genuinely be a, be a better place. It would definitely be I better. Do, except oh, she'd never do it. Of course. Because she'd go, Roger, if you think I'm going to waste my time with something as flimsy as Facebook, <laughs> you've got another thing coming, darling. But uh, what I tried to get from him and what I wanted to try to understand is like, what is it like when you create something that r- literally is just a social network? You're just supposed to be socializing with people and sharing photographs, which is pretty innocuous. And then it becomes something that can influence elections and foreign policy and the way the, the world is viewed and the way narratives are spun. And, you know, it's a daunting task, and especially when you didn't set out to do that in the beginning, nor did Twitter. Twitter set out to just be something where you just post, oh, I'm going to the movies today. And, and then it became what it is now because people realize, well, this is a tool to distribute information. And you yeah. can just put up anything. And now 
should we just limit that information? And that's what they've decided to do. They've decided to take this moral and ethical position and impose their own ideas on what should or should not be said. But all all based at some point on their position that they want to go on getting richer and richer and richer and they want Meta to be the biggest company in the Mm. world and to own everything else and then they really will rule the world. That's the, the I think that's the mental aberration. Well, that, that's the that problem the with every re- technology, or excuse me, every uh, corporation. They want to continue growing and getting bigger. Yeah. And you have shareholders, and they demand that you make more money next quarter than you made this quarter. And if you don't, you are not doing your responsibility. Funnily enough, there's groups of Chevron shareholders who are going to the AGM now and telling them to pay the indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador, the money they owe them because they don't sleep at night. Well, that's great. Which is great. That's, that is really important. Well, uh, that, that's what you would want from people that have that much fucking money. Yeah. To say, hey, you know, like I'd rather have a little bit less and be able to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you... I've never been to Davos and I never will because the World Economic Forum seems to me to be a can of worms that I don't want to get within... That's a scary kind of worm. We have a, a photo of Klaus Schwab in the bathroom. Have you seen it? The <laughs> one where he's wearing the crazy outfit where he looks like he's in Star Wars. We yeah. have a, a giant metal photo he, he, of him. He started Davos, right? Yeah, he, st- yeah, he started the world. Well, he's like the one that's, you know, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Like, Yeah, yeah I read that. Yeah. Well, that's the, the, what he is is almost like a character in a movie. Like you would, If it, it was a movie, you would go, well, that's too over the top. Yeah. There's no way there's a guy with a German accent that's telling the world how to live and they get all the billionaires to come and, and meet with him and decide what to do with, with the future of food and health care. And, yeah. and, yeah. Well, that Davos, the World Economic Forum, is like yes. a bad movie. It is. It's like a really badly written Hollywood movie. It's bizarre. That you would just go... <laughs> Tear right. it up and throw it. Well, they're all flying there to talk about climate change in private chats. I mean, so it's it's so ridiculous. Like my friend Bono. Yeah. I met him once. Yeah? Yeah, I met him. We, I'm going to tell you. I shouldn't tell you. I'm going to tell you this story. Tell me the story. Because it's kind of faintly ironic. And people will want to hang me for it because it doesn't... Well, you can make up your own mind because you might think it's brilliant. And people do sometimes write to me and say, why are you such an arsehole? Why aren't you more like Bono? <laughs> So here I am. I am going through an FBO. So I've just got off a private plane in Zurich. And suddenly there's Bono and he sidles up to me and whatever. And he was that grin he's got. And he starts sort of trying to make small talk. And I know I know very well what he's doing there. He's going to Davos. He's flown in for Davos. Mm. So that's why he's there for Davos. But what I didn't tell him and... Uh, I'm going to be, this is going to sound like boasting, and it is. The reason I'm there is because I've just been to northern Iraq and been across to northeastern Syria and picked up two kids from Trinidad with their mother and flown them to Zurich, and then we're flying them back to Trinidad because their father joined ISIS and stole the children and took them there, and then obviously he was killed. And my friend Clive Stafford-Smith said, what are we going to do about these two kids in Camp Roach in northern Syria? And it was one Christmas, and uh, it was 2019, I think. And I and I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to go and sit by a roaring fire, you know, in Switzerland, and uh, and occasionally go skiing, or am I going to go to Syria and try and rescue these kids? So we went to Syria, but I thought it was 
I thought it was a really interesting meeting because I've never understood his whole thing of, you know, George W. Bush is a good bloke. I'll go and visit him on his ranch in Texas. He killed a million people, well, not on his own. Obviously, the rest of the neocons were with it. Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and, you know, and Bill Crystal and all the rest of them. They, all, they were all in it. And Tony Blair, let's not forget. They were all in it together. They all did it together. They all knew it was a lie. They all knew it was nonsense. They all knew they were doing it to steal oil or whatever they were doing it for. But it certainly had nothing to do with 9-11 and it had nothing to do. And so obviously I still boil with rage. You can't ignore 100 million dead. You can't. You just can't go, oh, well, that was 17 years ago. Forget about it. Forget about it. You know, you can't. Well, I can't. Right. But obviously Bono can, I assume. Otherwise, why is he going to visit George Bush? Anyway, that's. I, I know that I probably shouldn't have told you that story or said any of that stuff. I think, I mean, if you really wanted to find out what a person like that is like, that would be an incentive to go visit George Bush, to find out, like, whether or not that does hang on his conscience like what it was it like to talk to him that's interesting yeah i would do that i would do that just to talk to him try to figure out like what do you how do you feel knowing that there were no weapons of mass destruction in yeah. iraq but like, you wouldn't get a straight answer from him would you i don't know i don't know what you would i've get. seen the paintings of his feet that he did in the bath <laughs> <laughs> he just bizarre paintings right aren't they weird yeah they're weird and it's like you uh, uh, i mean obviously i'm armchair psychologist here but I'm I'm looking into him like that's a man that's very troubled. That's a man that I mean the the weight of the world and the the deaths that were caused by the decisions that he made as a president. Yeah. And the amount of American lives that were lost, the amount of, of Iraqi lives that were lost, the, the way the world has changed, the way the world thinks of America post 9/11 is so different. There was a window of time right after the attacks on the World Trade Center where the the whole world was united with America, like and so that was that was squandered for money. Yeah, that was squandered. That was squandered when we invaded Iraq. That was squandered when you know people had this real, true understanding of what the motivations really were, and the fact there weren't really weapons of mass destruction, and that we saw the devastation and the lo lost lives and. The way the world looks at us is incredibly different. From September 11, 2001 to today, it's a, just a complete polar shift. The yeah, you're completely right, of course. But And the interesting thing as well is that on February, I, I believe it was Valentine's Day or, or the 15th or something, there were 20, over 20 million people all over the world in the streets saying there are no weapons of mass destruction. What are you thinking about? This is insane. Hans Blix has already told you there's nothing there. They've hunted and hunted and hunted. Colin Powell stood up and lied in the United yeah. Nations, knowing full well that he was lying. He, can't put, he must have had access to all the information. They all knew and whatever. And yet, you know, and yet you're going to do this thing. My, my theory would be, where, if you go and see George Bush, he's still alive, is he? Yes, George he's w. still alive. Okay. It, well, if you go and see him. You could drive there from here. Why don't you drive over there one weekend? I think they'd probably shoot me. 
I don't think you're allowed to just drive to George Bush's house. Well, they let Bono in. Yeah, well, he probably had a meeting in advance and assured them of his intentions and yeah. just going to go over there and sing Ordinary Love. And Well, I, my theory would be that he never escaped from the dynasty, you know, from his genes, whatever, from that family because it's a supremely toxic background to come out of, i.e. Bush Sr., mm. all that bullshit yeah. about getting Head rid of... the of, CIA. Yeah, and getting rid of the Vietnam syndrome. Yeah. You know? That's why Desert Storm or whatever the first one was called you know, yeah. happened, and all of that. All of that history is fascinating reading, but it's also completely insane. It's completely insane, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's yeah. terrifying that when you see the Eisenhower speech and you realize, like, well, that's it in motion... That's it in action. You're seeing it right there. That is the military-industrial complex making decisions. It's no more insane than what's going on right. now. Right, right, And this is where, when I, during my show, I, I touch on this occasion because in my show as well as you will see t tomorrow night, um, I, I sing two bits of a new song called The Bar. And uh, I, I make absolutely certain that the audience understand what the song is about. It's about this place that I carry around inside me. And I said, we all have it if we can find it in us, in our hearts or in our soul. And it's a place where we can converse with others and share opinion. Do this. Have, have a conversation about things and share our feelings. Okay, And even if we're lucky enough, share our love with other human beings in the world in a place that's safe. And I call that place the bar. Okay, um, why am I telling you this? I tell you why I'm telling you, because what I've discovered doing these shows, and I've done about 30 of them or a few more in the United States, is that people get it. The audience gets it. You yeah. can see them getting it. And in a way, what is good about it is that singing those three verses that I do of that song, it gives them permission to disagree with me and yet not feel they have to stand up and wave their fists and walk out. Because they've understood what I'm saying. Was it's all right to disagree about things and have different opinions about, but we have to allow one another to express our opinions. And it may be that we'll meet somebody who's you know, who who understands more about things. You know, if you meet the Dalai Lama, you're going to learn something from them. I'm not saying I'm the Dalai Lama. Right. Or, but, you know, there are things we can learn from other human beings. That, yes. That um, without going on Facebook or, or picking up our phone and, you know, and, and whatever. Anyway, I'm well, not making I, much sense. No, but. you are making sense. But I think that's one of the great things about your show is that you combine this amazing music that has this incredible history to it with all of these messages and with all of these visuals. And I think uh, you got a lot of attention during the Trump administration because of the flying Trump pigs and mm. all the other the visuals that you did. People loved it. But then when you put up a photograph of Biden and said he was a war criminal, mm. then people were like, wait a minute. You're on the wrong side now. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, well, let's see what happens, shall we, before we come to a final conclusion about Biden. As I said in the Schmokonish interview, I said there's something criminal. There, It is criminal not to be trying to end the war in Ukraine, but just by trying to pour weapons into it, just pouring weapons into the Ukraine. Ukrainian people can't beat Russia in a war on the ground. However many weapons you give them, you're just they're just cannon fodder. That 
policy shows that Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken and the administration and whoever is pulling their strings to go all conspiracy theory for a minute couldn't give an F about the Ukrainian people. They couldn't care less how many of them. They've said so. I saw, what's his name? Not McConnell. Lindsey Graham. I saw him in an interview the other night going, we are going to help the Ukrainians fight to the death. Jesus. He said it in an interview on a television station. And you go, what, their death? Well, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't there, so I couldn't. But that's what he means, yeah. Let them fight. It doesn't, who cares? They never cared about a Ukrainian before. Why should we care about them now? Well, the answer is because it suits the geopolitical aspirations of the people who buy the election that you were talking about. Yeah. They're weakening Russia so that they can become the unipolar, you know, the hegemony can produce again this. They can rule the world. They want to rule the world. They said so back in the 90s. Paul Wolfowitz told Wesley Clark in uh, the Pentagon, yeah. face to face, we are going to destroy seven countries in the next five years. Wesley Clark's gone public about it. We all know it because he's told us all. And people go, well, so what? Yeah, that speech where he discusses that. But let's let's play that because it's very powerful. Yeah, pull up that Wesley Clark, um, the the uh, discussion where he talks about the seven countries, how they laid it out, and a lot of that has already been put into motion. Absolutely, but there there was a plan. Syria's almost gone. The Yemen's pretty well gone. Um, Iran is the big. Somalia's gone. I can't remember what the others were, but we'll find out. In a that minute. was a, an eye opener for people because you're you're listening to a general, and he's discussing this. Well, the general is relating the story yes. that was told to him by an uh, by an undersecretary of state at the Pentagon. Right. What, what I have, whatever Wolfowitz was at the time, I so, can't remember. Right. So you're listening to someone who is one of the people that actually gets to discuss these things with yeah. the people that pull the strings. Yeah. And he's relaying it to us. So let's play. So this is uh, retired U.S. Generally, General Wesley Clark, uh, Wars Were Planned, Seven Countries in Five Years on YouTube. And I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Rumsfeld. Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to... Come in, you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq? Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later. And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years. 
starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Wild. Wild. Yeah. Just wild to hear him lay that out. Yeah. Because it's conspiracy theory, but... Well, it's not. It's but history. We, right. But actual. Yeah. And yet it disappears into the ether. Like, right. it doesn't matter. It's not important. Yeah, they were... Yeah, but what, yeah, yeah, it's like, who cares? Well, I care. I care. Yeah. Imagine if you were Somalian or Lebanese or yeah. Syrian. Well, look at Libya. Or Iraqi. Libya is a failed state now. It's an yeah, incredibly it's dangerous place. I mean, they have yeah. open slave trade yeah. that you could watch on YouTube. Yeah. There's, there's a lyric in a new, another new song of mine, one of the other songs I wrote in, in, uh, in lockdown that talks about, I'd say, um, in Timbuktu or in the Republic of the Congo or and other states where some things... I can't remember. I'd have to look it up. But it's, it's saying where, for the old slave trade to merge seamlessly with the new... So I'm making that point that that this foreign policy is reintroducing slavery to the world and reintroducing the slave trade in Africa, North Africa, West Africa and the Middle East. That's what it's doing. And um, and people seem to think it's all right. But what what's the end? What's it for? Why? why what is it? Even if you can't, uh, in, um, I've written another letter to somebody which I haven't posted yet. But it, it's, oh, I know, it's to a counselor in the Ukraine who has, made, who has declared me persona non grata in Krakow, which is a, a big town very near the Polish Ukrainian border, because he claims I'm a Putin apologist. And so all my asking everybody that I can get to listen to me to make peace, to stop the war, to start negotiation or whatever. For them, I'm a, you know, all they want to do is kill every Russian that they can get their hands on or whatever. What was it? Why did I bring that up? I'll, I'll remember in a minute. And when I do, I'll tell you, because it's to do with the whole thing. Oh, yeah. No, I can't remember. I've <laughs> lost it. But it'll, it will come back to me. That's how my brain works, unfortunately. <laughs> How what is your creative process when when you sit down to write music when you sit down to compose songs like how how do you go about that? I always used to say for years and years I used to I don't go about it or I haven't in the past. In the past, my answer would always be I don't do anything until I get a pregnant feeling, I, and I can't describe the feeling really except that I know that I'm about to give birth to something so that's as close as I can get it's a weird sort of fog of nothingness that feels as if it might clear and I might see something or something might pop out and very often after that I put myself in in a physically in the same room as a guitar or a piano and, and with a legal pad and a barrow and hey, presto, sometimes something pops out and I go, oh, that's interesting. And then I work on it. More recently, when COVID happened, I did two things. One, I wrote some songs that had been bubbling a bit. And that might, it might be just a little guitar riff or a chord sequence or something. And then and I might play it. And then 
My brain is a very fertile place for ideas and for lyrics and for the way lyrics scan against bits of music. So it comes kind of quite easily once I've had a first idea. I did that. But also I, I, um, I thought I've got a couple of years of this. I've been meaning to write a memoir, so I'm going to do it now. So one day I got this out and I went, well, go on then, you prick. <laughs> Go on then, clever clogs. So I opened a Word document and I went, and I started to write. And before I knew it, I'd written ten thousand words. And I went, and I was probably a bit drunk. And so I went, oh. And I went back a couple of days later, and I went, bloody hell, it's prose, and it's quite funny, but it's deep as well, and it's actually rather moving. And so I had a eureka moment. You know, I went, fuck me, I can write prose. I couldn't believe it. Because I love prose. I mean, I, I love to read books. I love books. But you never sit down intentionally to write like that. I never sit down like, you know, professional writers, sometimes they say, I get up at six every morning, have a yeah. cup of coffee and a piece of bacon, and then I go to my room and I write until 12.30. Right. And then I have a bottle of champagne and pass out and lie in the cell, whatever it is they right. do. But they have a routine. Yeah. I don't have that, so... I work when I think, hmm. Or I might be drifting past the piano and sit down and go, oh, that's it. And I might even reach for a pen and write a chord sequence or something down. But so it's a very, it's not, it's not, it's it's not a regimented protest uh, process at all. When you're as busy as you are in touring and all these things, how do you find time to create? Do you? Do you allocate time to create or do you just sort of like let... No, when I'm touring, I get back to the hotel. We we have a trough. We have a golden trough after the show, which means that there's always food and drink for everybody. And then I, I normally would get, to the, uh, get up to my room at 2 o'clock in the morning or something. And then usually I put the stick of the show into the side of the laptop. And then I might look at a bit of it. And if I didn't look at it then, I look at it the next day. And I make notes. I change the show every day. Really? Yeah. Every day? Yeah. Wow. And I go in the next to the next show with notes. What are you playing there? And they may be visual notes or the text, or the, but I'm changing it constantly. I, I had It was my um, production manager, Chris Kanzi, lovely man, been working with him for umpteen years. It was his birthday yesterday. And uh, I went and had a small glass of wine with him. And um, we were talking, and he said, we did 211 wall shows when we did the wall. We did it for nearly three years, starting in 2010. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's reminiscing. And he said, do you know what I remember? And I said, what's that? He said, the 211th show was in somewhere or other. I can't remember where it was. And he said, and you came in with notes and changed the show on the 211th show. <laughs> on the last show. Wow. And that was it. We were never going to do it again. So I'm a bit obsessive. Well, that's why it's so great. Maybe. maybe partly, I yeah. Yeah, but, I don't think there's any other way. Yeah, there's, there's this huge excitement to go, ah, then we could do this or we could do yeah. that. Or it would be better if that word was changed or if we did this or if we changed that or... So, well, that speaks to the ethic of what you're trying to do that you're tweaking it to the very last show of a tour. Yeah, I'm going to talk to you a minute just for a second about prose. 
Yeah. I told this to Chris Hedges the other day, but I'm going to tell it to you as well because that's what's jogged my memory. You know that thing when you're reading a book, okay, and you've got it on your bedside table or whatever, and you read it every, or, or any time. It doesn't, you could be lying on the beach, and it's a great book. It's a really great book. And you get to about 10 pages from the end, and you find yourself putting it down quicker because you don't want it to finish. Oh, I do mm. this anyway. And you, and a lot of people who read, I think, will know this experience. So you keep putting it down because you don't want it to finish. Well, I wrote a poem about my experience with Cormac McCarthy's um, All the Pretty Horses. I don't know if you've read that novel, but if you haven't, you should. It's a fantastic book. And uh, I was feeling like that about it. So I wrote a poem and I sent it to him. He never replied, but I, that's fine. I wasn't really expecting a reply. And it's just called On First Reading All the Pretty Horses. And I'll try and remember it. Um, there is a magic in some books that sucks a man into connections with the spirits hard to touch that join him to his kind. A man will eke the reading out, guarded like a canteen in the desert heat, but sometimes needs must drink, and then... Hang on. And then the final drop falls sweet, the last page turns the end. I know I now fucked it up because I forgot the last. <laughs> That's all right. You get the point across. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy. <clears throat> and of I course, I haven't read that book. I said it's you know it's like and a river runs through it. And Hedges just went, <gasps> oh, the mm. last paragraph of and a river runs through it. Do you know that book, Norman yeah. McLean? Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that. I do because we were talking about writing. Yeah. Prose. And so the, during the pandemic, when you had all that free time, that's when you started writing prose. Yeah. Yeah. And I've written a book. It's, like it's done? 500 pages long, more or less. Pretty well. I mean, we're, we're starting to put it in a proper order and figure out, you know, wh wh whether I need to write anymore or what I need to do. So. And when you wrote that, did you have a process like a writer does where you just get up every day or did you just do it whenever the no, I because, moved because I was in lockdown, so I was in the same house all day every day that I would, if I wasn't sort of doing anything else, or which I, most of the time I wasn't, I'd go, where was I? Mm. Know, and just pull the laptop over and write another chapter about something different or... Leaving all the Pink Floyd stuff to last, obviously, mm. you know, for obvious reasons. Hard things to write about stuff, so you just leave it alone for a bit. What's well, the biggest breakup in probably rock history? Don't it, you think? I mean, it's it's. I don't know. It's up there. You yeah, know? Well, maybe I don't. I'm I'm not very up on rock history. Cause really? I, well, I'm not very interested in most popular music. I mean, there are certain people that I'm great fans of, that mainly the the sort of the writers, the singer-songwriters, you know, like so Dylan and and Neil Young, and but I won't start a long list because I probably could, but it's that end of the spectrum that I'm more interested in than I'm not really interested in loud rock and roll, uh, and which some people are and they love it, but. I couldn't care less about ACDC or Eddie Van Halen or any of that stuff. I just, it, who? You know, I don't go who because obviously <laughs> I know the name. Right. You know, 
and I'm sure Eddie's brilliant and a great guitar player and wonderful. I just just doesn't interest me. Right. Um, but look out, Ma! There's a white boat coming up the river. You know what was that called? The powder powder monkey, I think, which is on Russ Never Sleeps. Something like that. I kind of have to take a deep. I have it. <gasps> you know, it's like mm. wow. What did he just say when the first shot hit the dock? So you don't really consume rock and roll music? No, I'm too busy working on my own stuff. Wow. It seems to be working out, though. Well, <laughs> Whatever the it, process it's is. It's filled in 79 years. Yeah. Sort of, you know. <laughs> and I, and it's still, I'm still, ex- I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm loving, these are the best shows I've ever done, by far. Really? I've made a real breakthrough. Um, this is the first time I've ever sort of managed to communicate with an audience in a way that is satisfying. What's different? I've opened my heart. I'm vulnerable. Mm. And yet, because I've done that, they, they're responding, and in consequence, I've become bolder. Uh. If, you know, the more you risk, the more you potentially lose, but all, also the more you potentially gain. When you share your share your heart with somebody, they can either you know step on it or give you a bit of theirs back. Well, so many performers, particularly musicians, they put up this wall. There's this wall of image, and you know what they're projecting, and you get this rock and roll show. You get this superstar, and then you're the audience, and there's not the connection is only that you love them. Yeah. They appreciate you. You love them. Good night, everybody. Yeah. But in showing vulnerability and trying to establish true connection, you feel like that's where you've made this breakthrough. Yeah. And and it's risk-taking as well. So I, I sing a song um, unashamedly about nuclear war at the end of the show when everybody's just watched the second half of dark side of the moon and they're all you know really happy and quite rightly because the band my band is really good and and so everybody's very moved i take the risk of saying you know there's something that we that is a lot more important than any of this we are teetering on the edge of an annihilation and they and they they've arrived at a point in the show then where they go and they but they also go Let's listen to what he has to say. And some of them even know the song, which is from the final cut, which was the last record I made in 1983 with Pink Floyd. And then we do it, and they, and they and a lot of the audience respond. They want to show me that they understand and that they care, and they stand up, and that when, when everybody's being blown to bits and it's the end of the world in the song, and we, it's visual as well. It's beautiful animation that Sean Evans has made who's my uh, collaborator in all things visual in these shows. And, and the people sort of get it, but it's still, it's, it's pretty somber because there's, there's nothing really rah-rah or rock and roll about nuclear war. Nothing. But you can't ignore it. And when I say, you know, if you run into Joe Biden in the street, you might just tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, Joe, shouldn't we get rid of nuclear weapons? Why not spend our time? Let's talk to Putin about that and also China. All the nuclear power. Why don't we all get together and say, listen, these are too dangerous. 
can we all agree now? We've had them since 1945 and they've done nobody any good. Can't we just get rid of them so we don't have to worry about them anymore? The problem is they would worry that someone wouldn't. And that person would have the nuclear advantage. Well, somebody maybe wouldn't. Well, we've got them. Part part of the worry about the big accident is them falling into wrong hands. Yes. You know, and that's a perfectly legitimate concern, in my view. It is. Could you do? Is it possible? Do you think to put that genie back into the bottle, though? Yeah, of course, it can be done. I think so. Yeah, all it requires is the will, of, the will of the people to persuade. But again, it's like you—you you can't do it until you can separate, until you get rid of Citizens United. You can't do it until you take money out of politics. Right. You certainly can't do it. Over here in the United States, whether you, they could do it in Russia or, you know, Russia's an autocratic state, so who knows? When people bring up, not, yeah, Russia and or China with me, you know, I say, you're talking to the wrong bloke. I don't speak Russian. I don't speak Chinese. I've never lived there. I know a little bit about the United States and about the United Kingdom and less, but a little bit about, I speak Greek, so I know a bit about Greece and and, you know, we learned French when I was at school, and there are neighbours who we hate across across La Manche. But I can't, without speaking Russian and Mandarin, how can you possibly know what's, right. what's going on? Or and I, also, how could you know in the context of their culture? Like, you don't exactly. totally understand their culture unless you speak their language. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Language is so important. That's why it's no surprise that Chomsky, you know, is... is you know, right. His work in linguistics was the thing that brought him to notice of other academics and intellectuals back in the fifties. But and he's right because you know linguistics is has always been hugely important. It, it, linguistics is the basis of all philosophy, and unless you speak the language that the, that the philosophy is being described in, you can't begin to take part in the conversation. One thing I have to ask you because I, I. I I can't forget this. The synchronization with The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Is bullshit. Is it bullshit? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, it may not be. It may be that if you do what they say. It may be if you do what they say, but it has nothing to do with us, any of us. Nothing to do with anyone in Pink Floyd or anyone who wrote or recorded any of the music. It's something that somebody thinks. So it's a, it's a coincidence of some time. And maybe it's cosmic coincidence. And it's I do like the story, though, of um, the cop in Louisiana following a bus, and it was weaving about the road a bit. And, and so he pulls it over. Young motorcycle cop boom, puts the bike up on the stand, opens the door, <laughs> nearly falls over there's so much smoke coming out through the bloody door he goes in it goes through and he's trying to f- find people you know with dope because it's just full of marijuana smoke eventually gets to the back of the bus where there's a private compartment and he opens the door and goes in and there's Willie Nelson and he, and the story is that Willie Nelson is listening to Dark Side of the Moon and watching The Wizard of Oz on the TV <laughs> And I don't believe it for a minute, but I like the story. Yeah, I don't even want to investigate that. I want it to be true. I don't want to find out it's not true. But if you, I've I've watched it. I've watched The Wizard of Oz listening to The Dark Side of the Moon while high on marijuana. And if it's not on purpose, it is a cosmic coincidence. 
because it's kind of amazing. Oh, it's kind man. of amazing how it it just flows. If only I smoked dope, I could join you in that experience. You don't smoke so, at all? No. Never? Oh, yeah, yeah, ever, yeah. Yeah. i tell you why, because I used to smoke cigarettes a lot and um, way, way too much. And particularly when I was working, I chain smoked, literally. So I'd smoke three packs at least a day wow. of Marlboro Reds. Whoa. And I gave up eventually. And, and I gave up like in the late 60s. But I didn't really give up. I gave up smoking rolled cigarettes. I continued to smoke cigarettes with tobacco and hashish in them. Oh. So I pretended I'd stopped smoking cigarettes. Right. But well, I that, hadn't. I was addicted. That's a big thing in England. Spliffs. Spliffs, yeah. Yeah. I, when I was over there, I was fascinated by that. I was like, why do you guys have cigarettes in your marijuana? Like, what is this? But it's pretty good. Well... I did it because I was addicted to nicotine. And, mm. it, and then in 1975, I realized that that's what I was doing. Uh. And after that, I never smoked dope again. I didn't like it. I don't like being stoned. I don't like the feeling. It makes me paranoid. That's what I like about it. <laughs> what, being paranoid? Yeah, I like it. Oh, my God. I, I enjoy the feeling of vulnerability sometimes. Wow. Well, Keeps good for you. Chacun a son goût, as the French have it. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paranoid enough already without smoking dope. Oh, I am too. But uh, occasionally I think um, just the there's an understanding of vulnerability that comes through marijuana <laughs> that I, I enjoy. It's sort of a perspective enhancer for me sometimes. Okay. Well, good for you. But, you know, with Dark Side of the Moon and with The Wizard of Oz, the combination, pretty incredible. All right. Good. Well, we've done, <laughs> we got that out of the yes. way. So when you guys, like in the early days of the band, mm. what was, uh, like, that's always the connection with rock and roll and drugs. Like, this is like, the, that's the narrative. Yeah. Was that, in the early days of Pink Floyd, was that the case? It wasn't really no? relevant. I mean, during the, uh, the the time when I was smoking hash every day was 1970, 71, 70. So it's pre pre dark side. It's when we were making metals. So it's echoes and things. But I don't I don't think it had I don't think it impinged on my burgeoning writing career, if you like, when I was you know starting to write songs because Sid. Um, went crazy in 1967 and so by 69 he wasn't we weren't seeing him anymore he disappeared completely and was that because of LSD or was it no I don't think so but it, you know that's that, the narrative right yeah that's the narrative or one of the narratives um it, it may be because he, he was mixing with people who were doing acid on a regular basis, I think, in 67. Um, and and um, I'm sure he did, too much of, he did too much of it. Was he teetering on the edge of what might be called schizophrenia at the time? I think so, probably. Mm. A lot of the things that he was saying, and it was right at the beginning of us getting our first record in any chart which was Arnold Lane no it was after Arnold Lane it was in when C. Emily Play came out and we were beginning to do TV shows in England 
and I, and I, he went very odd, and he started. I remember him at Top of the Pops in the dressing room one day. Um, he had hair a bit like that painting on the wall, and uh, going sort of like, and then going, looking worried and a bit frightened, and then going. John Lennon doesn't have to do this, you know, which was kind of wacky. Um, this was like three quarters of the way through the Beatles' career because they'd only had that one decade, really. Um, and so he 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 had misgivings about being on a miming pop show, you know. And do, I mean, Sid, this is what we've worked towards for the last four or five years. It's to be on top of the pops and make a few quid, you know. Buck up, boy. Let's get on with it. And uh, but he never did buck up from from sort of that moment on. Really, he wrote a few more songs, but n nothing of any any real note. And he just got more and more and more detached until he was completely wacky and not making any sense. And we made. I mean, I made a lot of. Um, attempts to find out what was wrong and to involve his family. You know, he had elder brothers who I would ring up and say, hey, there's something really wrong with Roger, as they called him, because he wasn't, his name was Roger Barrett, not Sid Barrett. Oh. I said, he's not well, I think. And one of the brothers actually came to London and went and saw him and called me up and went, he's fine. You know, he's had some troubling times, but he's actually fine. And I went, Alan, he's not. He's not. But trust me, I've been, I live with him, you know. Anyway. And we tried to get him to a shrink um, so could, on a number of occasions, but he would never go in. And and then he just got weirder and weirder. Like and in what way weird? Like what was, what was... Incommunicative, not making any sense at all. Not making any... It's like... I actually mentioned one of the one of the periods, one of the moments is in the show because it's a, it's in when we play "Wish You Were Here," and I do wish he was here. And I, I mean, he's he's partly what that song's about. And "Shine On You Crazy Diamond" is just completely about Sid. But we were, I tell the story in text in the show, and it goes, um, we'd been to a meeting at the Capitol Tower in in Los Angeles, and Sid and I were walking down the street after it and we stopped at the traffic light at Hollywood and Vine Hollywood Boulevard and Vine Street in Los Angeles and he looked at me and smiled and he said it's nice here in Las Vegas isn't it well we were in LA so the, he, he he already had no idea where he was even like that but then he I, I say in the thing you'll see it the show it says then his face darkened and he looked down at the ground and spat out one word, people. And it that sort of encapsulates what it was like. Nothing made any sense. Mm, disjointed. Blank, disjointed, you know. And there we were, all young, all very young, and trying to make our way. And, and I think... By that time, Dave had already joined the band to play guitar and because Sid could, didn't play. I'm not saying he couldn't. Well, he couldn't really because both of us made solo, his solo records with him, helped produce his solo records after that point. And he was, he, it was pretty kind of disjointed and difficult to get him to do anything. Did he continue to deteriorate further after that? Yeah. And then he went home to live in Cambridge 
And he lived a very solitary life. And I, I spoke to his sister, Rosemary, after that, and I was saying, Could it, does it make any sense, you know, to go and visit? She no, don't do that. Mm. And she told me, I said, why not? And she said, well, he gets very um, agitated and upset when if he's reminded of what happened before whatever this is. He doesn't like it. He d he doesn't want to see mm. people from his past. He'd rather be left alone. And he did. And he used to paint a little bit, and live just on his own in Cambridge, until he died, when he was sixty. Wow. Um. So, I don't know what else to say about it. Really, it was tragic, obviously. And but but. Those of us who were in Pink Floyd at the time experienced it as a existential threat as well. Fuck me, what are we going to do? He writes the bloody songs. Well, I wrote about 20% of them before. But, well, but they were nothing. Sid's songs were the things that were different. They had that weird English romanticism about them. You know, they were beautiful. I've got a bike, you can ride it if you like. It's got a basket, a bell that rings and things that make it look good. I'd give it to you if I could, but I borrowed it. That's so quirky mm. in terms of its meter, the way the lyric attaches both to the melody and and to the um, time signature and the tempo of the thing is remarkable. Um and it wasn't just, you know, there were lots of quirky little songs like that, all, very, all in a very English romantic tradition and whatever. So we, how could we possibly survive? If the guy who writes the songs in the band goes crazy, you're fucked, basically. <laughs> Unless somebody else learns to, starts to write. Luckily, I did. I did yeah. start to write. <sighs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't mean to laugh because he was a huge loss. And I did love him. Uh, well, some, you know, unfortunately, sometimes there's comedy and loss. Yeah, it's. But what was it like to make that transition to for you to make that shift in responsibility to start writing and to? Well, I, it all comes back to my mum, really, because uh, we made in <clears throat> 1970. We made a record called Medal, and on one one side of it is a very long track called Echoes. That is sort of me thinking a bit more metaphysically about our trip, you know, as, a, as humans from ancient times overhead the albatross with blah. It was all a bit kind of romantic and science fiction. It was a bit Marvel comic-y. You know, it had kind of attachments to Doctor Strange, who was a cat. It, no Doctor Strange mentioned in the lyrics. I mentioned Doctor Strange in other songs that I was writing at the time. But, but it has one verse in it that defines everything I've done since. And the verse is this. It goes, um, Two strangers passing in the street, by chance two passing glances meet, and I am you, and what I see is me. Mm. And will we something, will they call us to move on and, and whatever. But that's the important couplet, is to recognize your connection with your brother or sister, whoever they are, wherever they are. So to say, to make, to make that attachment and to make a declaration that we're all in this together. So that's why I sing songs about the 
potential descent into a nuclear holocaust to my audiences in, well, tomorrow, Austin, Texas. Mm. It's just me saying, I, I see you. but and, and that's what the bar is all about as well. That's what the vulnerability is. It's saying, I recognize that we're all African. When you say that to a crowded room of Italian journalists, <laughs> they all look at each other. He's a crazy. We're not African. <laughs> We're Italian. No, we. You're misunderstanding me. Genetically, you know. Yeah. We now we have the genome. Yeah. We can stop worrying about race. There isn't any. There's no race. We just look different. Yes. But we're not. We're not at all. Isn't that a re isn't that reassuring? It is to me. It's fascinating. It is reassuring. And one of the beautiful things about art, and particularly music, is that you can get a message like that across. And because people love the music and they'll listen to it over and over again and they'll remember your concert, it'll resonate. Yeah. And it'll, it becomes a part of the way you think. It, yeah. it enhances the way people think. And that idea, like, like, a, 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 like a positive mind virus, yeah. will grow in your head. Well, we hope so. It does. It's a bit like when I sing Us and Them now, I stop playing my bass when we get to With Without and Who'll Deny It's What the Fighting's All About. Because I wrote that in 1972. Wow. Okay. That line. And it's still fucking true. That's crazy. Uh, you know. So you wrote that line during Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah. I was a small boy. Forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. So that's like that's another version of the bravery of being out of range, which I wrote in 1990. So I wrote 1990. I wrote the bravery of being out of range. So that's 20 years after I wrote Us and Them. And Us and Them is only about two strangers passing in the street, because there is no Us and Them. It's all us. Right. And so, but the people with the money who buy the elections that you were describing in the Citizens United bit of our conversation. They would have us, they own all the newspapers and the TV station, and they would have us believe that the us and them is real and that we are good and they are evil. Right. That's why we've got to kill them all. Yeah. And they sell that lie. And pe some people believe it. Intelligent people believe it. That was what was so disturbing about that conversation that you had with that gentleman on CNN. Right. Was that that was an us versus them conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure Michael McConish is a gentleman. What do you call him? I certainly wouldn't have him in my club. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Who, that was Groucho Marx. Well, he's a guy working for a, a propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. I know. I mean, that's what CNN is. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's if you want to work there, that's what you do. I you know, know, you want to be a baker, you got to work near an oven. Groucho Marx, I believe, said... I wouldn't want to join a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> yeah. Didn't he or something like that? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I agree with that. There was a thing called the intellectual dark web that was uh, a bunch of us uh, that were like uh, sort of d d different thinkers online. And they grouped us all together and called it the intellectual dark web. And I was like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so I started calling it the intellect, the, the international dork web. I started. I, I started calling it all sorts of different things to to, to mock it, and well, good. Much to the chagrin, chagrin of some of the people that were involved in it, but ultimately, it's kind of stopped. People stopped talking about it, but it was like, listen, don't make a club, just don't do it. 
Just yeah. don't. It's just don't even don't even pretend. Yeah. It's just people. Yeah. It's just humans. So lump us in together, then it's just. Yeah, clubs are a problem because they're always exclusive in yeah. one way or another. Yeah. So there's plenty of exclusivity in the world. We don't need more of it. Yeah. Yeah. True. Well, that's one of the beautiful things about music, right? That it unites people. And one of the beautiful things is that it, it unites people with different political philosophies, different religious backgrounds, different... If you enjoy music and you enjoy art, yeah, it, it brings people together in a very unique way because they have, a, a, they, they have a, the connection to this work. They have a connection to this thing that this band or this person has created. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. No, no, it is. You're absolutely right. I and um, I don't know why, but I'm, I I saw a picture of Dirk Bogard the other day because, um, oh, I know. Do I know? <laughs> I was watching a documentary about Buster Keaton, and so I'm like, how did Dirk Bogard get into that? Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was another thing. But I couldn't look at. Dirk. I was thinking how unbelievably handsome. And and elegant, Dirk Bogard is sitting there with his knee crossed over like that, you know, with a cigarette and whatever. Doug Bogart. Dirk. Dirk. Bogart. Yeah, he's an English actor. Sorry, oh. I, sorry, I shouldn't. Anyway, um, he was he was in a movie called is. Death in Venice. Yeah, there he is. Look at that handsome bastard. Yeah. Well, in, the at the opening of Death in Venice, um, he's sitting in a deck chair on the Lido. And it's um, Mahler's Fourth Symphony, or is it his fifth? Fourth, I think it's the it's the Adagiato from Mahler's Fourth Symphony, and it's just like you just go when you hear that music with those shots, him on the Lido, and there's a boat going across the Grand Canal or something like that. You just go. <sighs> so, so I find classical music often more moving than almost any of the pop music that I'm attached to. But if it's if it's if it's popular music, it's for me anyway. It's more likely to be Billie Holiday than anything contemporary. You know, mm. I was reading a bit. I was reading about um, God Bless the Child, and I read for the first time the story about because she wrote the lyrics to God Bless the Child, and it's a true story. Billie Holiday goes to borrow money from her mother who won't give her any, because she's skint. She's so skint? she wrote... What's that? Skint, um, out of cash. Oh. Broke. Oh, okay. She, she's broke, so she goes and tries to borrow money from his, her mother, who says, get the hell out of here, or whatever she says to her. So Billie Holiday writes, God, God bless the child who's got his own. Mm. Mama may have and Papa may have, but God bless the child who's got his own. And when you listen to that lyric, not knowing... That it's literal story of her trying to borrow mother from money from a parent. You, I made up all kinds of stuff about it. What does mm, that mean? Right. God bless the child who's got his own. What are you talking? What does that mean? And I'm trying to figure it out. And then I read. Now I'm. Se it takes me. I'm 79 years old, and I read. That's what it was. About. Oh my goodness. Anyway, well, I, it's interesting because I, it means different to different people. They they attach meaning to things. Yeah, and they decide 
like and and they'll have discussions about it much like connecting dark side of the moon to the wizard of oz it's like people have decided yeah. that there's that, and it, it 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 adds to the lore of what the art is yeah no that's right and i i love kind of enigmatic lyrics in in things as i love lyrics that are very direct i was talking about neil young earlier you know how i lost my friends i still don't understand they got lost in um something stationed so it became pulp bench mutations in the blah they were waiting away which is an absolute direct but me i just headed north to where the pavement reads the road and all that stuff narrative songs like that but there are also there's also a lot of stuff that is open absolutely to interpretation one i like to, of my songs that i like to hear people talking talking about or don't but i would notice is like the second verse of wish you were here goes um did they get you to trade your heroes for ghosts, hot ashes for trees, hot air for a cool breeze, cold comfort for change, and did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? Well, there's so many ideas mm. all wrapped up in that, in those words. I know what they mean for me, but a lot of people sometimes either misinterpret or they interpret them in ways that mean something to them, I think. I think also they attach it to meaning that applies to their own life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, which is cool. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. I mean, there's songs that become a, an anthem for a period of time in people's lives. And when they hear that song, it just immediately connects them. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful it, thing. It's funny that, um, hey, teacher, leave them kids alone, which mm. is bricked, has now been taken up in Iran. Uh, in all in all the protests in the in the streets because of the beating to death of uh, uh, what's it, her name Amsa um, Amini is the girl's name yeah. who died in for in, incorrectly in, wearing her headscarf for incorrectly wearing her hijabiat. It's fascinating what an uprising has come from that all over the world. I saw this massive protest in New York City and. Countries all over the world, yeah, and in Iran, it's 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 wild right now. Yeah, I I, I didn't go on yesterday to check it out, but they're still killing people in the streets. Yeah, um, the government. It, it's it's a tricky situation because obviously I'm against the idea of a theocracy under any terms, just as much. A, uh, the Iranian mullahs, the Ayatollah, as I am against the Israeli state, which is another theocracy and and whatever. But but I'm also very wary of, and not that it hasn't stopped me making videos and sending my support to the protesters and saying because it's separate from the politics of the thing, because there's a lot of um, um, there's a lot of talk that is encouraging the destruction of Iran in the right wing of politics in the United States. What Wesley Clark was talking about mm. on there, because they are on the list. Right. They're going to be just, they're on the list of countries that need to be destroyed. And, and obviously, anyway, what am I trying to say? But I, I, so I had to make the decision when friends in Iran said to me, look, they've just done this, do something. So I started making videos immediately. So of course, hey, Ayatollah, leave them kids alone has become big catchphrase in Iran, mm. and they're using it. And it was, you, you know, it, it started off, I was, all my work 
was banned in apartheid South Africa because the kids in the townships were singing Leave Those Kids Alive. Wow. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alive. It became a, a protest anthem for them there. So I'm really happy. I'm really happy that it fulfills that function in different parts of the world. And whenever it does, it's it's always against an errant authority of one kind or another, which again, which again is sort of the story of my life. I don't care who you are or what country you rule. If you're in authority and you're getting it wrong, and and not adhering to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from Paris in 1948. I'm against you. And the rest of it, I don't care about, really, but I care about that. Well, unfortunately, most countries, when they get to a position of power, don't adhere. No, they don't. It's, the, it's almost like the default setting. Yeah. Yeah, it is almost a default setting. It would be nice to see to allow a bit more leeway, particularly, say, in Latin America, to the new Colombian administration or the new president of Chile or the whatever, if we leave them alone and let them get on with it, whether or not they might develop societies where they don't feel that they need um, the heel of the jackboot to retain, to maintain control of her, you know. So it, it's hard to know because we, we, the West, the UK and the United States and, and the rest of NATO have interfered mightily in experiments in other ways to address um, social responsibility of governments in other economic models, say, like in Venezuela or in Chile or places where we attempt to depose the duly elected democratic government of the country. <laughs> Isn't it uh, almost ironic that the one country that was founded within the last few hundred years to escape from the control of a dictatorship became the country that intervenes in more countries' government than any? Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. If you really think about the origins of the United States. Yeah. And but what's, what's, what's really, what was really interesting is, yes, it is very, very interesting. It's fascinating. But if you... Read the Constitution. You've probably read your Constitution more carefully than I had and the Bill of Rights and the whatever. And the way the Electoral College was set up, it was sort of set up so that the people never really have a chance mm. to have any power in it. It's set up to be ruled by the elite who created and wrote the Constitution. But what I was going to say was, um, what was I going to say? Isn't it? that? The, yeah, but it's interesting as well that the media is so powerful and so sewn up and says the same thing in context, Democrats and Republicans, all of it together, which is, no, we're the good guys. Yeah. And somehow it gets ignored that, that the United States of America has interfered in more elections and have been involved in more coups and invaded more countries and deposed more democratically elected. Yeah. Elected. Not least the government of the Ukraine in 2014. And it's not, it's like it, none of it ever happened, you'd think, right. here. We wave the flag and, it, no, we're good, we're good, everything's great. No, it's not. It, is, it, just, it, it just isn't. Well, we just have so much momentum yeah. uh, in this country for, for the dissemination of propaganda yeah. that to like put a halt to that and start objectively analyzing the United States' role in all these foreign conflicts 
and where money has played a part and what are the motivating factors for us to getting get involved in this and who stands to profit and what are the what are the forces behind this yeah. like to to expect that from mainstream media at this point it's like you know they they're almost like well that's just not what we do well the unfortunate thing is and without with wishing to decry all journalists everywhere but most of them in the mainstream media the problem is that if you speak up against um, the story that they're selling on behalf of the ruling class, you get fired. You get fired, yeah. You're gone. Just happened to Katie Halper from The Hill. Yeah. She she agreed with Rashida Tlaib that Israel is an apartheid endeavor, which it obviously is. You're fired. You're not yeah. allowed to say that. So it's it's a, it's really problematic. And it may well be that in journalism school, they, they may well teach people now that you have to be really careful to toe the line you can only say what they want you to say you can't that i nearly said little prick but the guy from rolling stone who he's not from rolling stone um who interviewed me the other day. no 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 not not michael this was this was rolling stone this was like two days ago i was a bit under hot under the collar about it two days ago because it was a hatchet job if you if you don't believe me read it but i know you do believe me i believe you (laughs) anyway this kid um, yeah, we were having a conversation and I was talking to him about something where there is a narrative and uh, we, do, we, yeah, I will. I'll just say this one. Okay, and it, it's, um, it's about Syria and it's about false flag and it's about chemical weapons and it's about Duma and it's about April the 13th and it's about um, the OPCW and it's about the inspectors Ian Henderson and Inspector B and it's about the whole narrative and about how it was taken eventually to the Security Council by Aaron Marte from Grey Zone and others and blah 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 so, that, so there are two narratives one is a sad Gastis people which is the officially accepted narrative and the other is that he didn't and that it was a false flag by the uh, by al-Nusra and al-Qaeda, who were in Douma, in control of the place on the day it happened, but left the next day because they'd already given up. And and the Assad government actually sent the buses to take them all away, saying, let's not fight in the streets. You've lost. You can go. Anyway, so this kid said, uh, started accusing me because... I've done so much reading and research into this particular subject and I've been in a lot of trouble since 2018 because I stood up on stage in, in, uh, in Barcelona and expressed my misgivings only because the United States and the UK and the Republic of France were about to go and bomb Syria in reprisal for a chemical weapons attack that there was a huge amount of doubt about all i did was i stood up on stage and said could we just wait and find out what really happened see what the opcw says and whatever before we go bombing a foreign sovereign country no they didn't they went and bombed syria anyway so why am i telling you this oh because he just shouted me down in the conversation shouted you down yeah just just said and accused me in the post thing of being a conspiracy theorist and having weird ideas about. How old was this gentleman? Not old, little o- prick. O- old enough to know better. <laughs> He's called James Ball. Yeah, I, I di- yeah, I didn't describe his prick. I said he was a little prick. Yeah, 
(laughs) (laughs) And so he was shouting. Anyway, well, you can listen to it. Okay. You know, anyway, but we never resolved anything. That's the problem. The thing is that, you know, oh, and he claims to run something called um, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Oh, really? And you buy this story of the Duma chemical as if it was absolutely the truth and you know it. How do you know? Oh, I know people in, you know, this smacks of Bellingcat and Elliot Higgins and all of that stuff and the, the intermingling of the security services, both in England and on the side of and probably in Russia and God knows where else, you know. None of this is, you can't believe anything. You really do have to read everything and you have to read the small print and you have to look in if you want to know the truth about things that happen. When you're doing something like that, you're reading both sides and you're trying to get an ob- objective assessment of what actually happened. Mm. How do you discern? How, how, do, how are you... Well, well, you have to read everything and particularly you have to read the documents that are leaked by whistleblowers there were new documents as late as 2020 from the OPCW from from a further person who came out and said, "We, I'm going to give you these documents now because they show that what you're saying is true. And they show that Ian Henderson's misgivings about the official OPCW document, which was an absolute made up job. The guy who runs the OPCW now is called Arias. Okay. And they they produced a final report on Duma that said it is likely that these people died of chlorine poisoning from a canister dropped from a helicopter or whatever. None of the evidence points to that. It all points to the fact that that nobody quite knows who killed these people, but, but the evidence all points to the fact that the canisters that were found at the site were put there, were placed there were left there. They were not dropped from the air. Anyway, I, I don't want to go through the whole thing. And yeah. You know, again, if you want to know about it, or if anyone out there wants to know about it, you should read Aaron Marte's articles in The Grey Zone. That's the first place to go. And then you should read, I've forgotten his name, but the guy who actually started the OPCW, who was fired because he started asking questions. You should read what he has to say about it. This is the guy who started the, um, you know, uh, the OPCW, the something for protection of chemical weapons. I can't remember what the O stands for. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop talking about it. So this this person who shouted you down, they yeah. had not read all this? No. I'm, so they had this narrow-minded perspective, this one, yeah. one-side perspective, yeah, which absolutely. is the mainstream yeah. narrative. Yeah, and they and if you question it, they say you're a conspiracy theorist and a Putin apologist and a Russian bot and yeah, this and that. They just call you names and call you names and right. laugh at you as if you're an idiot, and, uh, you know, which obviously I'm not. And I had read an awful lot more than this, which is why we couldn't have a conversation about it, because he hadn't read any of this stuff. I've read it all. Well, you always have to be, when someone starts shouting you down and they haven't read the other side of it, that's never a good sign. No. It's never a good way to show the veracity of your argument. No. Well, and it's public, so people can listen to the conversation. But they made yeah. it. But he and somebody else from Rolling Stone 
the very next day, i.e. yesterday, they, came, they, they recorded a conversation between the two of them before playing a recording of the conversation I'd had with the little prick. And, and that conversation they had was 10 minutes of hatchet job. Mm. I can't believe he said that about the Jews. You know, that sort of thing. I.e. trying to make up, make up the story that I'm an anti-Semite. Right. Again. Yeah. And load that onto I them. wonder why people do that. Do you think they do that to just support their own argument, to try to make it look like it makes more sense what they're saying, and then calling you a conspiracy theorist so to, to just to, for their own ego? Is it? No. Are, do you think that this is something that they're being encouraged to do by the publication? Well, the anti-Semite thing, if I could take that for they do it because they have no argument. There is no position. There is no defense for the apartheid state of Israel and its occupation of the Palestinian land. None. And so by calling you an anti-Semite, they just stop the conversation yeah. dead in its tracks because that's an yeah. indefensible position. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't and you're not allowed to say, I'm not. <laughs> right. You're not allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you once put the Star of David on the side of a pig in a show. Yeah, but I also put the hammer and sickle and the crescent and whatever and a dollar sign and, a, you know. Yeah. No, but you put the... Yeah, well, it's it's a symbol of an oppressive state, you know. Yeah. You're, I am lumping you in. But you're not... It's not like just you. Right. But that's that is just me criticizing the policies of your government and i'm afraid the star of david does represent the nation that is committing the crime of apartheid every day and murdering palestinians every day men women and children every single day so yeah i did yeah i did and i'm unapologetic about it but at the time when it happened, which was in 2013, I think, somebody complained. And I thought, God, this is more trouble than it's worth. I actually took it off after a few gigs because I was sick of it. Mm. And at the time, the ADL said, well, we don't approve of everything he does, but he's not an anti-Semite. But by God, they've changed their mind now. They, they, you know, they, they constantly. And it's not just me, obviously. They, they smear anyone. Anyone who dares to suggest that there's something bad about their policies. And so that's why the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is so bad and so dangerous. And why the guy who wrote it has said, I'm sorry. Mm. It's been taken completely out of the context that I meant it. I, he's called George or some I've forgotten his name sadly but he stood he stood up in public on many occasions speaking to academics and at, you know colleges and whatever and said I really apologize for writing this because it's been taken in completely the wrong way and I wish I'd never suggested it I I was you know influenced by people I shouldn't have been influenced by and it's bullshit the guy wrote it but they've got they're off and running and so but it has to be it has to be walked back from the IHR the International Holocaust Remembrance Association alliance sorry alliance definition of anti-semitism is you can't take a word and change its meaning completely right or you can but you'd have to get everybody anything to do with dictionaries to agree to change the meaning 
if you want anti-Semitism to mean criticism of the Israeli government, you have to say this isn't like the anti-Semitism that we talked about, which is where you where where you're down or or criticize or say bad things about Jewish people or the Jewish faith. That's what anti-Semitism means to me yes. and to everybody else. But it doesn't. You but the idea that you can't that Israel can be behave like people in the past behaved towards Jews in Northern Europe. No, it can't mean that. It cannot mean that. No, uh, it it can't. To criticize your behavior now is not anti-Semitic. It's something else. It's being. It's being in favor of equal human rights for Palestinians. So it's in, being in favor of the Palestinians having rights is not anti-Semitic. It's pro-human rights. It's pro-human being. Yeah. Pro -human it's pro-the culture of the world. Yeah. When, when you did that show in Florida and they, uh, the Jewish group removed the children from the show, did you replace them with other yeah. children? Yeah. Imagine those poor kids who were going to come and do the show. Would have been an amazing experience for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in contact with quite a lot of the kids that have worked with us in shows. Yeah? Oh, yeah, because some of the stories are, you know, particularly in South America where they were a bit, bit needier than... In Europe, they were, by and large, fairly all right, but in the United States... We did a thing... They've just come back to me. We had these kids who were a bit older than usual, and they were in Oakland, up in the Bay Area. And they were black kids, all black kids. Um, you know, and the boys had sort of almost had moustaches, and they were surly and uncooperative and really, you know, very difficult to work with and didn't want to, you know. And it was hard work. And I can remember feeling a bit negative towards these people. Anyway, they, they did it and they did the show and they were fine and whatever. And like a week later, there was a phone call came in another city into the production office and it was a guy on the phone and he was talking to one of the girls in the office and uh, he wanted to talk about these kids. And she was busy and went, yeah, what, what, you know? And what? he said, well, ho hold on a minute. Don't get it short with me. I, I want to talk to somebody. And I didn't talk to him, but somebody just went, oh, well, hold on. Who is that? Oh, it's Sean from Oakland, whatever. I brought the kids to the show. Oh, yeah. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? He said, good, but I think I need to say something. Could you pass this on to Roger? Yeah, he said, because I could see it was difficult working with my kids. Yeah. I said, yeah, what? He said, well, I want to tell you about those kids. He said, none of them has two parents of those 12 kids, boys or girls. They either have a mother or a father, but they none of them have both. If they have a mother, she's a hooker and she's a junkie. If they have a father, he's in prison. So if they were a bit uncooperative, I can I can feel myself getting emotional now. That's why. Wow. And he said, the other thing I want to tell you is this. He said, nothing like that has ever happened to any of those children before. 
and they've talked about nothing else since they came and did that show. That's the first thing that they've ever done that they're proud of. Those kids. Wow. I know. I think I was in Chicago that night. I tell you what, I can tell. I, I don't know why. I, yeah, I do know why I'm telling you because you were, you know, we were having an open conversation. I, I think I was in Chicago. Steve Bing, do you know who that is? He was a rich bloke from LA. Yeah, I've got left name. a ton of money, and he was in film production and this and that. And he was a strange bloke. He killed himself in the end. Uh, somebody told me that the other night. I said, do you know that Bing threw himself off a 27-story building? When did that happen? I don't know, a few weeks ago, I think, or months ago. I honestly don't know because I hadn't spoken to Steve for years. So I don't know. He had more money than sense and he did a lot of drunk, I think, junk. Anyway, that, that's not the thing. But he happened to be in Chicago and came to the gig in Chicago and when I and I, when I heard this news about these kids in Oakland, so I said, "You should send them some money, Steve. You're rich." To this group of kids in Oakland, so they can maybe do something theatrical, yeah. blah 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 blah. And he and um, he said, "Why well, you've got money? <laughs> Why don't you send them some money?" And so I think we sent them either fifty or twenty-five grand each. And I was really glad. That, so they got a check for uh, 50 or 100 grand. I don't know what it was. I can't remember. But they did. And I never spoke to the guy again. And I have no idea what happened to the money. And I don't know. But I do remember when I heard him say, that's the most important thing that's ever happened to these children. It's amazing, isn't it? You touch those lives, however briefly. And that's and you brought it up because you talked about the kids in North Miami yeah. who weren't allowed to sing with me because some prick had told the mayor that I'm an anti-Semite. Some probably very worthy feeling, you know, local yeah. Jewish community association. And I'm sure they believe it. They probably think I'm bloody, you know, Goebbels or somebody. Well, well it's a, a very defensive position that's taken up by many people where any criticism of the policies of Israel is anti-Semitic. Yeah. And it's a, like a, it's like an absolute, almost a binary thing. It's either you're on or off. You're either with us or against us. Yeah. Well, luckily, I I'm, I mean, I have lots of, you know, close friends who are in organizations all over the world um, who are actually Jew Jewish people, like in Jewish Voice for Labor. I, I won't mention the names, but cloak become close friends of mine and things. So it's a weirdly divisive thing that anybody should think that the settler colonial project in Palestine has anything to do with Judaism. It shouldn't have. You know, if, you, if you're going to be a settler colonialist nation and subjugate the indigenous people to death, well, okay, but you, you can't do it uh, under the cloak of your religion right. and say so you can't criticize this because of my religion. As I said to you before, how would that be if, if we just suddenly decided that the United States was a theocracy and only Christians could have rights? What? What? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it would be insane. It's, it's somehow, well, it's removed from our just it's not discussed publicly 
it's it's also removed from our view. It's not something that we see. We're not over there. So right. unless you go, and I've had friends that have gone over there, and Abby Martin in particular, who's come on the podcast and said, talked about the atrocities that are committed there, and, and even attacks on journalists and murdering of journalists yeah. over there by Israeli troops, and uh, you know she just gets mercilessly attacked for for talking about this. She even interviewed people on the street in Israel and asked them questions about Palestinians and got these horrific responses yeah the dehumanizing the the othering of those people I know them both I know Mike and Abby very well and I, I I believe you and I've heard those stories from her as well well they are it's a small country and they're a long way away and the uh, the press is completely well it's not actually funnily enough there's one independent paper called Haaretz in 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 Israel, and a close friend of mine who is an Israeli Jew writes articles for it, and they're very humane and they're very. But somehow they just get brushed aside. And to, his name is Gideon Levy. If you ever want to look up somebody who's making sense um, from from you know that side of the tracks or that part of the world, Gideon's your man. Um, I don't know why. I, yeah, it's hard. It's very hard to shine a light brightly enough that people go, oh, I get it. Yeah. And particularly if the leader of your great country is going, I don't want to hear anything. I'm not interested. I will be the greatest supporter of Israel. One, three million percent that there's ever been ever in the whole history of everything, whatever they do, I don't care. There's no political consequences for saying that, though. That's no. part of the problem. You, you, you can say that, and there's zero political consequences. But if you do talk about the Palestinian people and their rights and the plight of the Palestinians, yeah. then you are connected to Hamas. And yeah. then all of a sudden you're connected to you, this is a terrorist organization, and there, it doesn't matter about those people. Yeah, it's a, the, the narrative is support of Israel equals you're on the right side. Yeah. Yeah, regardless of how their policies impact individual human beings through no fault of their own, just happen to be born Palestinian and been stuck in this apartheid state. Yep. And that's the other thing is that they, you know, it's, it's very binary in that way. It's like you're either with Israel or you're with Hamas. Yep. You're, you're with this terrorist organization that puts its people in danger purposely and uses them as cannon fodder. So they can gain support internationally, and and does all these human rights atrocities, and launches missiles at Israel. Well, yeah, I know. I I I hear all of this just the same as you do. But they're just human beings. Well, well, well they're also the democratically elected government of Gaza, Hamas. Okay, and there is an armed wing, and whatever. But if you actually read international law at all, or the Geneva Conventions. And occupied people have an absolute legal and moral right to resist the occupation. And this, this is a fact that is not bandied about when they talk about um, firing rockets into Israel, which almost never do any damage because they're very ineffectual. But it, yeah. it's and, and then another thing that is a great worry to the Palestinian community is that the Israelis seem now to have a policy of pushing them, murdering so many of them that they are absolutely trying to create another intifada so they can make it an armed conflict 
where they're a thousand times, 10,000 times more powerful than the Palestinian people who they are hoping will arm themselves and the young people gather together in bands and try and have an insurrection, an armed intersection, so they can just kill them all. When you say that Hamas is the democratically elected leaders of Palestine, how corrupt... I didn't say of Palestine, I said of excuse, Gaza. Excuse me, of Gaza. Yeah. Uh, how corrupt is that election? I've no idea. I wasn't there, but it, but it was in 2011, I think, right. was the... Uh, has there been an election since then? I don't know how you would organize anything in Gaza, which is a prison. Right. It's got borders. The Israelis control who comes in and goes out. They open fire on, on Palestinian fishing boats again yesterday. So I, I can't really answer that question because I'm not there and, and I don't know. Does anybody have a clear path of resolution that makes sense for that area where they could sit down and come up with some sort of humane, logical, compassionate way to mitigate uh, some of these problems? Does anyone? Yeah, I do. What is yours? You do. You, you give equal human rights to people, and but you would have to stop the occupation and stop one group of people oppressing another group of people. You would have to accept the principles of Paris 1948, and everything would develop from that. Then you could have a process. You could all get on a plane and go to Oslo and have meetings. They did that once before, but nobody stood by anything that was agreed in Oslo. It was just a delaying process to consolidate the occupation of Palestine, i.e. the settlement building, the private roads, all of that stuff. But, yeah, but you, you would need the will you would need the will of the Israeli government, and then it could move forward. Is there any discussion from the Israeli government no. or from Israel no. about the human rights of the people of no. Gaza? None. None. They're implacable. All they want is for Liz Trust to move the um, UK embassy to Jerusalem and compound the problem, just like Donald Trump did when he did that. And he exacerbated the problem beyond all measure. Because it's like, oh, look, the, the president of the United States has said it's all right for us to annex the Golan Heights and occupy the whole of what was left of Palestine in 1967 and establish an apartheid state. Donald Trump says it's OK, even though the whole international community up until that time had said, no, Jerusalem, it cannot be um, all combined under the control of the state of Israel. That is not what we all agreed in 1947, and it's not what was... And so the occupation in 1967 of East Jerusalem was illegal and still is. All the settlements in the occupied territory are illegal under... under not, not just under international law, but under the Fourth Geneva Convention as well. And it's also illegal not to allow the refugees to return into Israel as well. You can't do it. It's illegal. But the fact that but international law, as we know, because the United States isn't a party to the Treaty of Rome, they, 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 they said, well, we're not part. We, we didn't sign any of those treaties. So we're not subject to international laws. So... Um, the United Nations Charter is a wonderful document, 
But unfortunately, um, the United Nations came in the ashes of the Second World War and included within its charter is uh, the fact that the five permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, uh, France, England, China, and Russia, all have the power of veto of any resolution. And so the United Nations actually has no teeth if you have the power of veto. So you get anything to do with Israel is always vetoed. Any resolution that says they better stop behaving badly and do the right thing, as my mother would say, um, is always vetoed by Israel, the United States, the Marshall Islands, Australia, and a couple of other odds and sods. It's always the same five or six people. Well, uh, who, who, who support, or, or rather who don't support resolutions in the General Assembly that say Israel should behave better. So it's very difficult. Thank goodness it exists and that people are allowed to stand up on their hind legs and make speeches. And thank goodness that they can make alliances that are outside the control of this of um, the Security Council, but they can't make it they can't exert any pressure. There's no they can't make sanctions or they can't they can't exert pressure, which is so it has no teeth, but it is a great forum still for discussion. I actually spoke not to the General Assembly, but I spoke to the um, Human Rights Committee of the of the General Assembly of the United Nations in 2000, on the 29th of November, 2012, I put, really? I put a suit and tie on <laughs> and I called them your excellencies. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It's on YouTube. I'm sure you can find If you want to see what I said, you can find what it. What was that like? I, lo I loved it. Yeah? It was really great. You know, and the, and the, um, the ambassador, well, this bloke came up in a suit but with a funny collar after, and he put his hand out and he went, I want to thank you and blah, blah, blah. And that was a great speech and whatever. I said something and he wandered off. And I said to somebody, who was that? You know? And they said, oh, he, oh, he's the ambassador to the United Nations from Iran. Mm. And I went, wow, how cool is it to meet such a person even? Yeah. Uh, anyway. I, they've never invited me back. <laughs> well, I think that's a one-and-done type situation. It's, it's a, but it's a, you know, if if I hadn't done that, it would be on my bucket list to go and talk in an august gathering of people like that. And they clapped as well when I'd finished. I was only calling for peace, just like I'm with the Ukraine. Yeah. My platform is no different. Paris 1948, come on, that's... That's all we have to do. What a weird world we live in where calling for peace is controversial. Yeah. And it can get you... It's, it's, you're, you're considered a traitor. It's very strange. Yeah. Well, people are just so... There's so much confusion yeah. as to how the world actually works. Yeah. And there's so much confusion as to like what the clear solution is and what you're saying is a clear solution to to be a good person to do the right thing yeah to and to apply that to the whole earth yeah well the problem is as or, or a big problem here as i've said 
many times before, is that that group, including Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bill Crystal and the rest of them, the whole neocon cabal has no interest in doing the right thing. They want to rule the world. Right. That's all they care about and keep making money and never give any power to the people and make certain a democracy never appears anywhere in the world. They want to be in charge of everything and keep everything going just as it is. They want Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of them to get richer and richer, and they don't give a fuck about the rest of you or me. They don't care. You know, they, they probably find it hard to believe that we haven't revolted, that there hasn't been a revolution. Do you really think they find it hard to believe? That they find it hard to believe. Yeah, but they, well, they find no, it hard. no, probably no. they don't. I find it hard to believe. But we're all, you know, throw the dog a bone, right? Give him a phone, check yeah. out your Facebook likes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything will be all right. Let them kill Assange. You know, the Assange thing is bizarre. Yeah, it is. It's the most bizarre. Yeah, because there's there's no case, no, for none. doing anything for what they're doing to him. And initially it was like some sexual thing. And now it's it's ambiguous. The little what prick it, wanted to argue with me about that as well. What did he want to argue? What and was this is position? a guy this is a guy who claims to run something which I haven't had time to look into, called the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. Yeah. And he doesn't give a fuck about Julian Assange That's being insane. murdered. It's insane. By Slowly. Liz Truss. Slow murder. Slowly. Yeah, by Tortured. Boris Johnson and the whole of the English judicial system and with the connivance of or at the behest of the US government who want him dead. They want him hung up like a magpie in a hedge as a warning. And it bloody well will be a warning. Can you imagine going to journalist school and going, I know one thing I mustn't do. Don't leak anything that's very important. Or don't publish it. Yeah. He didn't leak anything. Right. He just published something. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's amazing how little support there is for him and how, how much uh, you just – you don't hear anybody outraged. It's just – it's nothing – and even if someone is in support of him being arrested or him being deported to the United States, there's no good argument. There's nothing there. Think about all the things that people have gotten away with. Yeah. I mean, look at this fucking Ghislaine Maxwell thing. Yeah. Ghislaine Maxwell, this, I've said this before, I'll say it again, she's the only person ever to be tried and arrested and put in jail for sex trafficking to no one. There's no list. Where's the list of the people that she sex trafficked to? Well, the problem is we know that they're heads of state, billionaires, wealthy people, famous people. King's where, brother. Where, yeah, King's brother. Where's this list? Where's the list of people? The, the list is non-existent. So you're trying her and convicting her for a crime where if you're, if you're sex trafficking, that means you're trafficking to someone. And if that someone is an American citizen or a British citizen, that, that is an illegal act. So who are these people? that have committed this illegal act, because they're responsible as well. Right. So who are these people? And how is there no 
well, discussion of this. Well, there's no discussion because Jeffrey Watts' face hung himself in his prison cell. Yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> insanely bizarre, right? That one. That's insane. Oh, the cameras just happen to not work. How convenient. Yeah. There's ligature marks around his neck and a fractured neck bone. No worries. Yeah. That's what happens when you hang yourself. We were having a cup of coffee. Yeah. Or whatever it was. I I confess I don't know a huge amount about the Jeffrey Epstein affair. Or I know too much, unfortunately. I've read too. It's a very disturbing thing. But the most disturbing thing is that there's no list. Like this is that that's a real crime, right? Well, isn't the story the anecdotal? The anecdote is, isn't isn't it that, um, isn't Andrew supposed to have given somebody twelve million quid to go away? Yeah, and to get off the list. Supposedly, it's hard to know whether or not that's true, but for sure, there's money's been exchanged, influence has been exchanged. So, I mean, people are just—they're not throwing any bones. Right. Like you know, there, there has to be a large group of people that were involved in this, and there's none. That are being exposed, yeah. which is quite fascinating. Because I guess if you did get exposed, if someone said, "Hey, you know, blah blah blah, head of this bank, we have evidence that you were having sex with underage girls," that person could say, "Okay, what about Bill Clinton? What about this guy? What about that guy? He was there too." And then the House of Cards comes down. So Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Hard to imagine. Not just Bill Gates, but Bill Gates after Jeffrey Epstein had been arrested and convicted for statutory rape, mm. right? I mean, he, he'd already, he had that very light slap on the wrist. Yeah, d did he, I, as I yeah, say, that was I the first really arrest. There was a this. first arrest, and then it, he was convicted, and he got this very light sentence. And then uh, there, I believe there was a journalist, I, I forget who the journalist was, but one journalist who kind of tracked this down and hounded this story until it became exposed publicly. And then then he got rearrested. And then he got arrested and tried for other crimes. And then once he was in jail, that's when they, you know, suicided him. Yeah. Yikes. It's a wild story. Yeah. But just the fact that there's a place like that, there's an island that he owned. Like, where's this guy getting this fucking money? I don't know. To, run, to own an island. And the island is for sale now for, I think it's $100 million or something like that. Like, wh where'd you get that money? You know, and then the, the CEO of uh, Victoria's Secrets gives him a $60 million mansion in Manhattan. Like, what? And then you find out that these other CEOs have given him $100 million, $150 million, $50 million. Like, what? What's what is this? Some bizarre... in. In intelligence operation? Like, what is this? Like, what are they doing here? You sound like a conspiracy I do. theorist. I am a conspiracy theorist. Some, <laughs> well, look, some of them are real. I'm not a, a outrageous or illogical conspiracy theorist for the most part. I believe you. But there's a lot of conspiring. The idea that conspiracies don't exist. Well, what about Enron? What about the, what about the Iraq War? What about there's yeah. so many conspiracies that you can prove easily. Yeah, they've turned out to be true, and just yeah. follow the money and power. Yeah. It's a weird world we live in, Roger. Sure, shit is. It is. I'm living in, but I I confess I'm living somewhat in the moment at. 
not right now. And I don't I mean, I, we shouldn't talk about the Ukraine anymore, but that, that's kind of a, mostly what I think about. Is the Ukraine. Yeah. Well, it's the most, the most potent possibility yeah. for the destruction of mankind. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And there are so many people that are putting Ukraine flags in their Twitter bio and causing for an escalation, calling for an escalation, rather. Yeah. And it's very disturbing. Yeah, it's very, 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 very disturbing. Well, you know, all I can do is keep writing letters to Mr. Putin and Mr. Biden, you know, and, and Mr. Zelensky and Mrs. Zelenska. I had no idea that you you changed the letter at the end of their name depending on gender, but now I know. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Well, she's Zelenska and he's Zelensky. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. What you learn about, you know, other people. Hey-ho. Well, what should we talk about now? <laughs> <laughs> we can wrap this up. Listen. Well, we still have some pool to play. Yeah, let's go play some pool. Let's right. play some pool. We'll wrap this up. Uh, but, but it's been a very enjoyable visit. Thank you very, very much. I, re I really appreciate it. I Not appreciate your all. time. I appreciate your courage, and I appreciate your your intellectual curiosity and the way you chase down these ideas and these stories. And you you have so much information at your disposal when you're discussing these things. You're so informed. And I think that's very, very rare. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And I can't wait to see your show. I can't wait to see you get that bloody pool stick out and break. <laughs> Let's do it. it. It's your break. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody.